This is Jocko Podcast number 231 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Also joining us tonight, once again, is Dave Burke. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. So last podcast was with Dan Pedersen. If you haven't listened to that, he was the first officer in charge of the top gun weapons school in the Navy. It's a great podcast. It was awesome to have him on there. And as I heard him talking the entire time, as I read his book, which is also called Top Gun, an American Story, the the thing about Top Gun is that it's not just a school for for fighter jet pilots to go to. There is a a thought pattern. There is a mentality. There is an attitude. And this is not the attitude of, you know, that that and it really we you know, we barely even talked about the movie Top Gun on the podcast with him. And that's because in my mind, I could barely connect the two. I could barely connect the reality of that original Top Gun school with the attitudes. Look, there's some on the Venn diagram. There's some there's some overlap, of course. But we're not talking about the arrogant jet jockey. We're talking about the attitude of trying to improve, trying to learn, and trying to win. And there is a giant overlap. The biggest overlap that I found, the largest overlap in the Venn diagrams in my brain is, well, it's, it's my kind of fundamental core thought pattern, which is extreme ownership. That's what it boils down to, is this attitude that when you lose a dogfight, and this was very interesting, when you lose a dogfight, you don't blame the plane, you don't blame the other pilot, you blame yourself. You say, okay, this is my fault, why did I lose, and how can I win? And I, that's something that has possessed my life. And I see all kinds of comparison in there. And I see the same, look, that same mentality, that ownership mentality, it's in good seals. It's in, it's in a good jujitsu school. It's in a good business. It's in a good team. And it's in good leaders. And as, as, as it relates to the SEAL teams, part of this is, when we started using simunition, and, and we'll get into it, when we started using paintball, whatever you want to call it, simunition slash paintball, laser tag, this multi-million dollar laser tag system that we have, when you add that in here and you can start dogfighting, you figure out if you're smart, if you take ownership, you figure out how to win. UFC, jujitsu. Look, no one really knew who was going to win a fight between a karate guy and a wrestler or a or a kempo guy and a jiu-jitsu guy no one really knew who was going to win until the UFC until people started fighting or whatever valet tudo in brazil whatever you where, wherever you want to go when people start to go at it when people when you actually engage in combat and then you ask yourself why did i lose why did i lose 
and and when you ask yourself why you lost and you don't blame it on the guy was big think of how easy that would be in jujitsu hey the guy was bigger than me the guy was stronger than me the guy was faster than me those are the reasons why my system didn't work it's this excuse it's that excuse it's another excuse instead of saying you know what i didn't win let's figure out why i didn't win and then let's make some adaptations and so the more I thought about this, and I, and I said it, you know, as soon as he left, as soon as Dan left, I was like, oh, we, we're, we're gonna have to go deep on this stuff, Dave, because the better, you know, the better I can understand what it looked like from your perspective, I think it just opens up a better understanding of this whole mentality. So let's talk um, Top Gun, and let's talk fighter tactics, and let's talk winning and owning and making mistakes and learning from mistakes. Like this is how, this is what the winning teams do. There were some really interesting points when he was talking about Boyd and he's saying, Boyd is saying this aircraft beats that aircraft, which if you think about it, just like we talk about with extreme ownership, if, if I say, oh, that aircraft is faster, tighter turn or whatever than mine, that it's not my fault that I lost. Instead of saying, hmm, what can I do to win? How can I win? And to me, that right there, that's the difference. That's the top gun attitude. That's the extreme ownership attitude. It's not my plane's fault. It's my fault. And by the way, if you deliver me a plane, uh, uh, military industry, if you deliver me a plane that doesn't function correctly, what do I need to do? Take ownership of that and say, let me give you guys some feedback. Here's where this is Here's where this fails. Here's where this doesn't work. Here's where the shortfalls are. If you don't have that attitude, you go, oh, you know what? We don't have a good, good enough plan. Oh, well, they, 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 didn't, they didn't get it right. Oh, well, we're going to lose now. Oh, well, that's the attitude of blaming others and you never get better. Yeah. I could talk all day, so this is a cool subject for me. I'm in. Um, just first things first with the, the, the mentality of Top Gun is I learned more humility at Top Gun as an instructor than anywhere else. That's where I really started to learn humility, which is somewhat, if you think about it from the outside, kind of counterintuitive. It's also connected to what you talked about with the movie, is the closer you get to Top Gun, the farther you get away from the movie and to the point that there's literally zero connection because, you know, of course it's a movie, but when you're a kid, you see it and it sort of represents some idyllic thing that looks really cool and it puts you on a path to want to go do that. And the more you learn about it, the more you realize it's, it's just a movie. Top Gun breeds more humility because of what is going on at Top Gun. The charter for Top Gun is even more daunting than the charter for being in a fighter squadron. So when you're in a fighter squadron, you're supposed to be ready to go to war. You're in an operational fleet squadron. It's probably no different than being in a team. Your job is to be ready to go to war. The charter for Top Gun is to train every single fighter squadron's leaders to lead their most junior pilots into combat. And that's a that is a big, big deal. So when you talk about, am I doing this right or doing this wrong? It isn't just how good am I, or it isn't even really just how good the people around me are. Is if what I'm doing impacts the entire, the entire friendly US 
and allied air forces across the entire globe. And that's a that's a huge charter. And and that that generates a lot of humility because you recognize what it is you're doing. And it's really hard to understand that until you're on the inside. When I got on the inside of Top Gun, I realized what a what it really meant to be an instructor. You have a lot of weight on your shoulders and you have to deliver. Did you feel the um, same attitude of being the people that were responsible for preserving the capability of aerial combat? Did you feel that? Was there was there a, a sense that, hey, this is on me? Yeah. You, you, you are part of a legacy. And you are, you are one of the people in the line that's currently working in that line. And you, you have three years. That's what you're going to get. The obligation that you feel to to preserve the legacy and then make it better, which is also pretty daunting, because you look back in the history of Top Gun and think, "Man, how am I going to contribute to this and not just sustain it, but actually improve it?" Uh, you feel that from day one. There is a lot of history there, and it's not just history to feel good about it. It's history to give you a sense of what you were part of and what they expect from you. It's also, I've never worked so hard. I've never put in so many hours, and I've never been more solely focused on one thing than I did in those three years. Even in the fleet, w- there was a little bit of a balance. When I was at Top Gun, the balance was skewed so far towards, and I'll just say work just to, 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 be, to make it simple, but the balance was so far skewed towards Top Gun that I, I honestly didn't do, I don't think I ever did anything from Monday morning at five o'clock in the morning till Friday night at probably 6, 30, 7 o'clock on a Friday night. Those are the short days. Friday afternoon was a short day. Everything I did was completely connected to work. Everything. And, and I imagine when you compare that to being out in the fleet, out in the fleet, you got other things going on, right? You got manpower, you got administrative things that are happening, you got whatever, deployment cycle and schedule and all this other kind of administrative yes. stuff that just is totally gone the, when you're at the Top Gun. The fleet is cyclical. So you have a workup phase and you have focus on this workup and you prep and you have deployment phase and that's a huge amount of focus. And you come back and you kind of have, you know, a bit of a letdown phase. You lose some people, they go elsewhere, you get some new people on board and it cycles and the pace cycles up and down, uh, the responsibilities cycle up and down. What you're trying to do changes all the time. Top Gun is a bullet train. It has been since 1969. You get on that train and there's no cycles. There's no downtime. There's no post-deployment. None of those things happen. So you are just on that train all the time. And that train is just moving. And it never really slows down where when you're in a fleet squadron, I did my first four years in a fleet squadron, it cycles all the time depending mm-hmm. on, on what you're doing. And that, that those cycles don't exist at Top Gun. So when, when you went to Top Gun for the first time as a student, yeah. How long had you been flying an F-18 for? Uh, I started flying F-18s, if I can get this right, in early 1998, and I got to Top Gun in 2001. So you were kind of a new meat. I was on the, the, the younger side in both time and, and flight time. So time in, time in flying, total time, and then time in an airplane. So I was a more junior guy. There are certain qualifications you have to get, and one of them is called a division qual, which is leading four airplanes or more. That's a requirement to be there. I got that qual, I think, like the week before I showed up to Top Gun. So I was really junior to be going. Uh, you know, not unprecedented, but I was much more on the junior side and more on the inexperienced side when I got selected to go to the course as and, a student. And how did you get the nod and not someone else? You know, I mean, some of it's a bit of a numbers game. Every fleet squadron roughly has about 18 pilots. And it varies, but the math is typically one person a year is going to go. 
So in your three years that you're in a squadron, you know, maybe four, three or four guys are going to go. Now, sometimes you get two in one year and none the next because you're deployed, but it kind of works out to, to one a year. But there's also, a, you know, a, a kind of a window of, of where, where you can go. And I probably was competing with maybe 10 guys. It was not all 18. You no, know, some was a squadron commander. Some are guys that are they're not really in the window to go. So of those 10 you know, peers that you have, you're going to probably see one or two of those in your peer group go during your time in the fleet. And it's based on, you know, your performance. It's based on how well you've done up to that point. There's a bunch of qualifications you got to get. Would you done one deployment at that point? I had done one deployment. And they log every landing that you do on the Everything. carrier. And it's all graded. Everything. And so you had whatever a bunch of 10s and some 9s and some other guy had a bunch of 10s but had an 8 Yeah, like they it, add it all up. There's a little more subjectivity to it. Um, probably the biggest event is the big culminating event in the fleet and the Navy and the Marine Corps do it very similar, similarly is when you get what's called a you know an ACT, Air Combat Tactics Instructor Qual. It's like the big workup to kind of fully qualify you as a combat flight lead. And it's a huge process and it culminates with this kind of week-long evaluation where an instructor from the weapon school comes out and you fly with this person for a whole week and he puts you through from beginning to end, he puts you through the whole thing. At the end, he kind of determines, A, if you're a qual, and then he goes to your squadron commander and basically says, this is how this kid did compared to the, the dozens and dozens and dozens that I've, I've done personally as an instructor and the hundreds and hundreds that we've done as a weapon school. And they kind of tell the squadron commander where they think you are in their experience. And... The feedback that my ACT instructor gave my squadron commander was enough for my squadron commander to look at all the other things he had and then get this external feedback to say, hey, I'm going to send Dave to Top Gun. Do you guys dogfight in like your reg- regular squadron? Yes. You're going against each other? Yes. You're, and how many guys in the regular squadron have been to Top Gun before? I think when I was there the first time, there were two patch wearers in my squadron. So of 18 guys, I think two had were, were Top Gun graduates. And they can kick everyone's ass pretty in much. air combat. Yep, they're pretty much. So you get the nod, you go. When you when you show up there, do you have any inkling in your head that you're going to do well, that you're going to be able to hang? You're just like, you know 100% that you're getting in with the black in, the, in with the sharks, in with the black belts. Yeah, so I, I don't have a feeling that I'm not going to succeed. But I have, to be totally honest, I don't have a sense that I'm going to go that I'm going to dominate. I don't walk in there on day one thinking I'm going to crush this place. I wasn't afraid of failing. And, you know, I've had that feeling in different places. I remember going to OCS the first time thinking, oh, man, I I might be in over my head here. But I had no sense of. How long into OCS? Probably a week. It took me about a week to figure it out at OCS. First week was just kind of a state of paranoia, like, I'm not supposed to be here. I, I think I made a mistake. I, I'm in over my head. Did you not know what you were getting into? Um, I didn't. I, I, I did kind of sort of, but I didn't quite get it until I got there. I, I, all the things leading up to OCS were just a whole bunch of administrative things yeah. that get you there. It's like paperwork and interviews and applications and GPA and all, just a bunch of stuff. All it is is on paper. You know, you have to run physical fitness tests and show that you're qualified. But nobody had ever, I never replicated that experience at all. Complete so, and utter loss of freedom of any kind? Complete and utter loss of freedom. And then, but what kind of shocked me, for me at OCS, and it was a little bit of a detour, when I got to OCS, I looked around and everybody looked, the way they looked, they all looked bigger and stronger than me. And it kind of made me think like, oh man, I'm supposed to look and be, I'm supposed to be six foot one and, and 210 pounds. That's what I'm supposed to look like. And I didn't. I was 18 at OCS. I mean, I was small. 
and and I kind of told myself that what I was on paper wasn't who I was in real life. I'd never really been tested. I'd never been put in a situation I didn't think I could handle. And I get to OCS and 36 hours after you get there, you're on the first platoon run. And I'm like, I, I can't run this fast. I've never run this fast in my life. How is everybody running this fast? And I remember looking around thinking, this is nuts. I had enough fortitude in my mind to not quit. And the thing that helped me the most about OCS is the first time somebody else quit. And the first time I saw somebody else quit, when I got over the how weird it looked to see somebody quit, that actually was a little a little fuel, for a little, little help for me. And in the first week, people are quitting left and right. And every one of those times was help me. And go, hey, hang on a second, I can do this. Until I got to the point, I'm like, this is no factor. And the latter half of OCS was almost fun. I'm not gonna say fun, but it got pretty close. And by the end of OCS, I, I thought I was 10 feet tall. But I... That was the only real time in my life that I went somewhere in the Marine Corps. And I'm like, I don't think I should. I, I, I might have made a mistake here. And I proved myself, you know, it was a good test for me. So I didn't feel like that at Top Gun. I didn't feel like I was in over my head, but I felt like I was in a big, big, big ocean. And I was a pretty small fish, and I'm going to have to work really hard to, to get by. So, how long is the Top Gun school? 10 weeks, a little bit over 10 weeks, but it's basically a 10 week school. Okay. So, how many flights are you doing a day in the beginning you kind of plan on two and then about after the first third of the program it's typically typically one a day one flight is an hour hour and a half flights themselves are about an hour a one 1.1 is what you're going to log for flight time for at top gun one flight a day for five weeks First, first, first couple of weeks you said is two, two flights a day. Yeah. So first week is academics. Then you do about two weeks of kind of two a day. Then you got another academic kind of thing in there, and then you're typically for the last half of one flight a day. How many, how many air combat duels do you get in an hour? So when you're fighting one against one, mm-hmm. you're going to get probably four sets. We call them. A set is one engagement. One From engagement. start to finish, you can get four, sometimes five. And then, you know, depending on how it goes, maybe three or four is about right. Okay. When you when you you, you start off, you just said one-on-one. Mm-hmm. That's where you start is one-on-one. Yeah. Me against you. Yep. That's where it starts. That's right. And I, I would think that, because then the next thing you do is two against one, right? Yep. Is that right? That's right. Who's the other, who's the other, there's one bad guy and there's two good guys. The other good guy is a Top Gun pilot. Correct. Or sorry, a, 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 a student. Yeah, so when you go out two against one, it's you with an instructor oh. against an adversary. Got who's it. also an instructor. an instructor. Okay. Yeah. M- I- most of the fights you do up until the end, the really heavy phase, the one against one and the two against one, is you are by yourself or you are with an instructor as your wingman. Okay. Well, that's see, I, I, I assumed it would be you and me as students against Echo, the instructor. And we would go out there and, and the, beat him up. There are a couple fights like that, but most of the fights, your wingman is your IP, your instructor. And that's because we, if it was two knuckleheads out there, we just wouldn't we just wouldn't get anything right. It's not that you wouldn't get anything right. It's that the closer the instructor is to what you're doing, the more he can help evaluate your performance and give you the feedback that you need. Okay, so you go out. Or let's say I go out. I'm the student. You're the instructor. Mm-hmm. We go out. We dogfight against Echo. Uh, we do three dogfights, four dogfights. It takes an hour. 
we come back and and look i've heard you talk about these freaking debriefs right what what are you telling me as my instructor in these debriefs what are you telling me and how are you telling me the the things that i'm doing wrong is it just cold-blooded because look we all know that you know more than me and i just fully accept it and i'm like all ears is that pretty much where people are at yeah for the most part look i mean I do not want to under understate that their ego the ego's out there and it's it's a top gun it's there as a student the ego is usually connected to kind of the fear of being exposed as not as good as you are as opposed to the ego of I think I'm better than you and so the ego reveals itself in different ways but for the most part most people get there pretty early on and the disparity between the students and instructors is so great that people aren't really that afraid to just be brutally honest mm-hmm. now people aren't jerks about it but they're, they are brutally honest. And you figure out very early as a student, the two things you figure out is it's in your best interest to identify all of your own mistakes and your instructor's mistakes, You know, if you can identify those two, mm. because it reveals that you actually know what's going on. The other side of it is, is if you don't, the instructors pretty much don't miss anything. <laughs> so if you have a thought like, man, this was really minor, I'm just gonna kinda not talk about this, mm-hmm. it's gonna get brought up. And it's always better for you to bring up your errors than have somebody else bring them up for you. And that gets that gets in your head pretty quick. So when we get back from this thing, I'm gonna go through the debrief first. I get to kick it off, because yep. I'm the student. Yep, and I right. go, hey, I turned too tight there, I didn't use enough gas there, I, I, I didn't know where I was for a second over here, I lost track of you, my, my wingman here. This, so this is the same thing at when I was running trade at we, we, we would let the platoons debrief first. Like, mm-hmm. okay guys, you tell us how it went. And usually the platoon chief will kick it off and he's gonna hit a lot of stuff. The good ones will. The bad ones, same thing. They'll either cover it up or even worse, they don't even know what just happened. They don't even know what mistakes got made. And, and you know, so the platoon chief goes, then maybe the, the platoon lieutenant goes, and he doesn't see as much usually as the chief, but then the, the task unit senior chief might go, and he's going to see more. And then the t- task unit commander, you should get pretty close. And my goal every single, when I was going through training with my task unit, my goal was like the instructor cadre will be silent because there will be nothing left. We are going to rip ourselves apart so hard that the instructor cadre is going to go, Actually, guys, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was always my goal. So, so that's where we're going. Yeah. And are you having to teach me? Okay, so if you were coming to our desert warfare training and you're a new lieutenant, the first thing I'm going to do is, okay, I'm going to say, okay, here's maneuver number one. Here's maneuver number two. Here's maneuver number three. Here's maneuver number four. You got those basic four moves, right? You got four moves that you're going to do. This is what a contact front, you know, the enemy's out front. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to closed terrain. Oh, the enemy's out front, you're in open terrain, it's a different move, but there's there's a there's a, a basic number of moves that you're gonna go through. That's where we're gonna start. Is this what's happening or do you already know these moves? Yeah, when you show up to Top Gun as a student, you know all the moves. You you have to have demonstrated some proficiency in all the moves to even get there. Give me an example of, of let's go let's just teach yeah. me a couple moves right yeah, yeah. now. So And you know what at this point I'm gonna call this if you're not watching this on YouTube, I'm imagining you might start moving your hands around Probably, a little bit, yeah. which is which is you know <laughs> cool with me. But I'm, I, I don't want to keep saying the whole time trying to describe what you're doing. If you start talking with your hands, which you might, maybe you won't. But teach me a couple moves right now. 
Yeah. So when you start in the the we start in the one against one phase. So it's pretty straightforward. It's your airplane and my airplane, same exact airplane. You're flying it as a student. I'm flying it as an instructor. And like you said before, each phase the instructor will demo a brief. But after that, the flight lead and the person running it is the student. So he runs the brief, he runs the flight, and he runs the debrief. And obviously, the instructor's there to support through it. But the first set of moves would be when we what we call offensive BFM, which means I start behind you. What's I'm gonna, BFM? Sorry, good question. Basic fighter maneuvers. So offensive BFM is the first flight you do, which is one against one. And I am being set up by design in an offensive position to fight to dogfight you. So we're going to do a dogfight, and we're going to set it up on purpose that I start behind you. And so I'm going to put you in a defensive position. I'm going to put me in an offensive position. And the only real objective there is kind of three objectives is the first thing I need to do is I can prove that I can stay behind you, which is going to require me Wait, to this do. Is, you're the instructor. I'm the student. Okay. As, the, can, as the lead. You want to do it? Yeah, I, yeah. Let, let's make that. me the student Easy. because I'm going to have more dumb questions. Perfect. So I'm the student. You're the instructor. Yes. The first thing we do is I'm going to start behind you. Is that right? No. So I got it backwards. So if we're going to do offensive BFM, you're the student. You're going to lead the flight. You will be offensive starting all day. So when we start the flight and we do those, we do those four sets, all four sets, you will be behind me. Mm-hmm. I'll be the instructor, and your job is to is to maintain that offensive position. Got it. And the moves that you're going to do during that, there's only like three moves. The first is called an offensive break turn, which means that when I react to you as a defender, and I, I don't like this because you're over my shoulder, and I'm going to try to shake you, you have to show the timing and the sight picture to maneuver your airplane to stay behind me. And then the next move might be is that you have to be able to do a maneuver to avoid flying into the ground. And we have a simulated ground, so mm-hmm. you know, we say 5,000 feet to the ground. You have to do another maneuver that you can show me that you can transition down to the bottom of the, of the, of the, of the flight of the, of the fight and the deck correctly. And then the last move that you might be trying to do is that you can put yourself in a position to employ a weapon. Now, you know how to do all those things. You know how to do a break turn. So a, yeah. a break turn is I'm turning my aircraft. That's it. You turned yours. Are you doing like a a, a, a shuck and jive here where you go a little bit in one way and then you break yeah, no. the other way? Is there anything like that that's no, happening? No, th- there's not. So there, there is, is that because we're keeping it basic? No, it's because there's actually kind of a science behind it. And there's in each situation, especially in this rudimentary phase of one against one, there's essentially one optimal way to maneuver your aircraft. And it's different if you're defensive than if you're offensive. But as a as an offensive, so I'm offensive as the student, or you're offensive as a student, mm-hmm. you don't have like 14 different things you can do. As a matter of fact, you kind of have one, and what you need to be able to do is do it exactly right. Because if you're one second too late, 10 knots too slow, or any number of other variables off, you're giving away chance for me to get away from you. Mm-hmm. So for you to stay offensive and keep that offensive position that I've given you, you have to perform that maneuver correctly. Does the defensive guy shuck and jive a little bit? No, to be quite honest, what the defensive guy does is pulls directly at the offensive airplane, pulls right at him, closes the space as much as he can, tries to create some space, uh, 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 limit the space, and then I'm going to maneuver away from you based on how well that you do your turn. And if you do it right all day, eventually you're going to end up in the same place that you started. Mm-hmm. I will not respond by, like you said, shucking, your driving, or maneuvering until I see what you've done. Okay, so you're just being nice. 
I am flying my airplane the best way that I can until I see how you respond to that. And if you do it correctly, then I'll have to start doing other maneuvers. But if I just break into you and just pull my airplane right into yours, really hard turn, we call it a break turn, and you as the offender are really late or screw up the timing or go too fast or miss the cues to do it, there's not much for me to do. I don't have to do much because you've given away that offensive advantage. So you're flying flat, dumb, and happy. I come in behind you, yep. and you're just gonna, at some moment, boom, you're gonna turn left, right, yep. whatever, and I just have to track you and stay behind That's you. That's exactly right. It Do seems you, very simple. It That's, seems very simple. Yep. Do you even head fake? No. Right, because I, can, I can I see your head and your canopy? <laughs> mm, so the way that, the, the, the ranges that we start are typically a half a mile, a mile, and a mile and a half. Those oh, are okay. kind of just so, the predetermined so ranges. So you're way, way, way out there. You're actually, for most of those, you know, at least the start, you're using the radar as a cue to determine that range. You kind of have some eyeball calibration. But the head fake against someone who knows what's going on, mm -hmm. all it does is just get, give away more advantage. The head fake doesn't help you. The best thing you can do is just break hard. Max performance. What turn. if I was a MIG, you know, and I was going after you, what's the best thing, I'm on your tail, what's the best thing you can do, same thing? It's exact same thing. The, the, no kidding. The tactics that we apply, are the ones that we'd use in the real world. How is it not good to give a little shock and then go the other direction? Because what that does is that creates separation between our aircraft. And if I'm offensive and I'm the guy attacking on behind you, I want separation to be able to maneuver, employ my weapons, saddle in the way that I want, and adjust the, the situation the way that I'm looking to, to have it be offensive for me. If you minimize that separation and create a bunch of closure, meaning we're, we're now closing the distance, I have a whole bunch of maneuvering I have to do to manage that closure, which I don't wanna do. So I'm, when I'm on defense, I want you closer to yes. me? When I'm on defense, I want you closer to me. That's correct. Okay. Interesting, interesting. Just like jujitsu, your optimal position on offense is to have their back, because they can't see properly, they don't have any weapons that shoot backwards, right? No, you're right. So so just like jujitsu, you wanna you wanna get the person's back. Yes. So that's where we're at. So so this is manu this is day one. Mm -hmm. We're doing this. So all we're doing, so that's one move. You just taught me one move. I'm sorry it took so long. No, I'm not the smart, smartest guy in the world. <laughs> the first thing you teach me is, hey, I'm just gonna break. And well, now it's, I'm, I'm gonna break and, and you're gonna follow me. Okay, what's the next move? Move two. So, you're gonna teach me three moves. Yeah, I'll teach you three moves. Or you're gonna try to. So, so remember, you're the student. You're offensive. Because right now, this this is easy. I'm ready to be a top yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All <laughs> I gotta do is break. Are you kidding me? Let's do this. I got this. No well, break. the interesting thing about the offensive break turn that I just taught you, um, the percentage of students that get that right in the beginning is zero. <laughs> zero. And the percentage of the time that you get it exactly right, meaning you've hit all your parameters, is even by the end is still really low. Now you've narrowed your error window mm -hmm. pretty, pretty, uh, pretty small, but even just the simple, when do I do my turn? And when do I identify all the cues and know exactly what to do and exactly how to make it happen? Just doing that very first move is almost impossible for a student to do correctly the first time. So uh, I, let's say I, I said, oh, what about a head fake, right? If I'm in the offensive position behind you, I can see the very first indicator. As soon as I see your flaps do whatever, yep. they move a little bit and I'm on it. Yes. The quicker I react, 
the better right. I stay with you. Yeah. The, the more you can observe, and, and there's multiple cues out there. It's the angle of your airplane. It's whether or not your afterburners have opened up. It's your uh, angle over the horizon. It's how quickly you're moving. It's whether you're rotating or transitioning through the sky. There's a, a whole bunch of cues out there that you have to be able to identify in real time as you're moving typically 400 and something knots. So the closure is happening really fast. You have seconds to get this right. You call it closure, but we're both moving in the same direction, right? Not when I break back into you. So if I've got this guy behind, you know, I'm behind you and mm-hmm. you break, you're breaking into me. You're turning into me, creating even more closure. So picture me, let's picture you flying around and you look over your shoulder and you think, and you don't realize this. Now all of a sudden you see somebody's there. They're behind you and they're in a really good position to shoot. The only place for you to go to keep him from shooting you is towards him. Because if you continue straight ahead or just kind of maneuver around left and right, I just stay back there. So you have to get, you have to turn back into me to close that distance. Guess what what that's exactly like. (laughs) For sure, man. Exactly like jujitsu. Yes. Right? You, 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 as long as you're looking away, as long as they have your back, you're doomed. So your goal, you have to turn back towards them. That's right. It's weird for me, I think, conceptually, because this is taking place over a long distance, right? Yeah. It, like, I, I, when I'm trying to turn back into you, it takes, how long does it take to turn back into him? A minute? 30 seconds? No, seconds. seconds. Seconds? Yeah. So, uh, it, you will go from the time that you say fights on, which you would, which, which you would say, and then mm-hmm. I would start to turn into you. If you did nothing and just flew straight ahead, I would be past you in four seconds. I did a dogfight in an F-18. I did a bunch. I did a backseat ride up in Fallon, and I did a dogfight. I did a bomb run. Mm-hmm. It was it was really cool. But one thing, and I saw and did with the pilot guy was you can fish tail. Is this right? Mm-hmm. Am I perceiving this correctly? Mm-hmm. Like we turned, like our our wingman or whatever turned so hard you could see them fish tailing totally through the sky. Yes. So I guess that cuts down your amount of time that it takes to turn. Yeah, and that's a cue. You have to be able to see that and perceive that. And if he's doing that maneuver, that indicates how fast he's going. It indicates his angle of attack. It gives you a whole bunch of information about what he's doing. You need to be able to perceive that that's happening. You can, in your own mind, you can figure as he's turning a small circle, a big circle, you can calculate all those things in your brain as that's happening. That is a cue that you need to know in that other airplane as he's doing it. Are you getting taught these cues specifically? Yeah, you know the cues, you know the moves. The planes are being flown in such a precise and aggressive way that they that they are hard to see. And that's really what the debrief is about, is dissecting the cues that you need to figure out in order to maneuver your airplane optimally. Mm-hmm. It's probably no different than jujitsu. If you were to give me your back, say, hey, we're gonna start, Dave, I'm gonna give you my back. And all I want you to do is maintain that that position. How long do you think it would take you before I couldn't keep your back? It, it, it would pr- probably a matter of seconds. Yeah, pretty quick. Yeah, but if you said, hey, as I start to lower my shoulder and I put my, I want you to kind of bring your hip towards me and you show me that. Now, there's probably 20 other things yeah. going on, but now I got that, it's gonna add another two seconds right. before you bef- before you out- outmaneuver me. Now, eventually you will. And then you show me something else. And, they got, and now, so the goal is for me to incorporate all of those little individual things together and the eventual goal is that I've started in this offensive position and I never give it up. Mm-hmm. So that's one move. That's one move. One move. What was it? What's the name? Offensive break turn. Off, offensive break turn. Turn. What's the next move? So the next move is when 
me as the instructor figure out, hey, you're doing a good job. My defensive turn here isn't going to work for me. He's just going to stay behind me. He's going to shoot me. I got to do something else. You kind of called that, I'm going to shuck and jive. Mm-hmm. I'm, as a defender, going to maneuver my airplane in a different plane of motion. That first move didn't work. You followed me, and if I keep going, you're going to shoot me. So I have to do what's called a ditch, which I'm going to now point towards the ground and change this two-dimensional fight into a three-dimensional fight complicates the problem for you, gives you a different thing you gotta deal with, and now you have to figure out how to chase me, not just two-dimensionally, but three-dimensionally. And you're gonna have to follow my ditch. And we just call that simply a ditch follow. There's different terms for it, but it's, can you now take this two-dimensional flat fight and be as effective in a three-dimensional fight, which introduces a whole nother level of complexity, now we're going downhill. And this was the big thing that Dan kept talking about depending on the aircraft that you have and the power that yes. you have, we're gonna go from horizontal plane to vertical to vertical yep. plane. And so this ditch move is uh, the first the first movement into three-dimensional, out of the horizontal plane, into this other plane. That's exactly right. That's exactly and right. And that seems pretty straightforward. It does seem straightforward. All of these maneuvers are straightforward. How, how what altitude are you at when you, what's the, what's the minimum altitude above ground that you can start this maneuver at this ditch um depending on the airplane a good rough number is between three and four thousand feet before you think hey if i go much if i'm much lower than that to the ground and i do it i have a pretty good chance of hitting the ground you need several thousand feet to do it okay third move uh the third move is that when i get down to the to the ground the floor, you know, we call it the deck, but you're down towards the earth. We now have to do a deck transition, which means that now I can't move in the in vertically anymore because if I keep going downhill, I'll hit the ground. So now I have to transition back into a two-dimensional fight and preserve my position in a two-dimensional fight with the ground as a com- as a component of this fight now, which was not a not a factor up at altitude. Hmm. This means your your having to just gain altitude again? Is that what we're doing? The, the goal is to do one of two things. Either I now can gain altitude above him or I can push him out in front of me and stay behind him. Either one of those work for me, but I need to have some separation from, from the person I'm fighting so I can employ my weapon. I can't shoot the guy uh, at zero feet away from him. I have to have some distance between us. I can either have that distance above him or behind him. Just like jujitsu, just like this more moves into MMA, where if you're trying to hit me, I want to close the distance, get close to you, where your strikes won't really make a difference. Yeah, the the, the parallels are are. I mean, the, there might be some differences in terms of like the physical locations of the of the machines against with the people, but the parallels are, they're exactly the same. As an as a as a person who's offensive, if you think about finishing somebody, and the way I'm I'm going to finish is through a strike, which is kind of simulating what these weapons are. I need to have some distance between you and me for, to make that strike effective. Now there's a distance that if I get too close, those strikes just don't work. Mm-hmm. There's also a way that if I get so far away, mm-hmm. those strikes are ineffective, or it actually allows you to strike as well. And so I'm constantly managing managing those those separations and distances. And if I'm defensive and I look over and I see that person's in a great place to just throw a punch at me, I can either try to get away from him, which almost never works at that distance, mm-hmm. although there is a separation that you might try to employ. But at that, we started off was like, hey, you're starting in a place that we know running away won't work. So that range of a half a mile, a mile, it's designed to say the escape option is not available to you. So the only other option is, is I gotta close that distance to you. I can't let your strike be effective and I'm gonna wrap you up 
as best I can to do that. That's the defender's job. So what's this third move called? The deck transition. Deck transition. But it sounds like there's multiple options on how you transition from the deck. There are. And all those options are all accumulating. They're all an accumulation of how things have played out the entire way from the beginning of the fight down to the end of the fight. So remember, I started that fight 6,000 feet behind you. I'm a mile behind you. If you do everything right and I do everything right, guess where I'm going to be at the deck transition? A mile behind you. Six, 6,000 feet behind you. I'm going to be a mile behind you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be good to go. But if you've done a better job than I have, I've missed some cues, I'm a little bit late, I'll lose 500 feet here. I'll lose 75 feet here. I'll lose 1,000 feet over here. I'll lose another 50 feet here. And each one of those moves that I'm doing down to the floor, you've chipped away. By the time we get down to the floor, you know where the fights against top instructors usually end up? Either zero or worse, the defender has become the attacker, which happens sometimes. So that 6,000 feet, it's pretty uncommon to be able to preserve that distance against a Top Gun instructor from beginning to end. And each part of the fight and each maneuver that's being executed, you're gathering, you're, you're fighting for that distance. Again, apologize. I'm the student. You're the instructor. I start off 6,000 feet behind you. Mm-hmm. You break, turn. You do it successfully. You're now closer to me. Yes. And then you break, turn again and you're even closer to me? Yep. And you break turn again and you're even closer, then you ditch and you get even closer, and then finally, you either are, are so close to me that you're behind me. That happens. What, what's the other thing? If you don't get behind me, what if we're just now we're really close? So just realize, obviously, we're not gonna get so close that we're gonna hit, and so the distance of going from 6,000 feet a mile to being something less than that, if we were zero feet apart, we'd be parallel right beside each other. We wouldn't be zero feet. Obviously, mm-hmm. the airplanes have a safety bubble between them. But when we transition down to the ground, I'd look across, and instead of being directly behind you, I'd be directly beside you. And I'd have no way to shoot you just looking at you side by side. We'd be in a completely neutral position where nobody could shoot the other person, and I've given away an entire mile of advantage that you gave me uh, or that I that I gave you at the start as a student. Okay, how so we doing? We're doing good. I mean, it's there's there's something still a little bit hard for me to understand at this point. You two, you two, Echo Charles, a little bit, but I guess so because I you keep got to re- or you got to re- keep remembering that the distances are way far away. Like you know when you watch Top mm. Gun, it's like they're like right there and they're shooting each other and you know, but they're like super far away. But yeah. they're so, also kind of not because it's only a it's a second or it's two yeah. seconds or whatever to travel that mile. Well, the best so, thing I could do other than explain this better would be to erase from everybody's memory the movie Top Gun. Because <laughs> right. if that's where your head's going, this isn't going to work. Well, yeah, because you're like, hey, close the distance. So I'm like, okay, close the distance. But then, yes, you got to remember as well that there is no because essentially like, okay, like in jujitsu or MMA where it's like. Green zone meaning safe zone if you're too far away from the guy he mm-hmm. can't punch or kick you whatever um, Green zone when you're close mm-hmm. he can't punch and kick your effect, but there's the red zone Which is that distance right? Yeah. So in if a, and correct me if I'm wrong if I'm trying to understand this too where that initial green zone the out-of-range green zone That's not an option in this particular drill. Well, right. What is it? What is it? Is it like 10 miles 12 miles? The separation uh, in like terms of- If yeah. I'm on your tail, how far away are you from me that, I, that you're not in danger? Miles. Yeah. 
several miles. Yeah, and that's not an option for this particular it's drill, right? It's by design. This one away to one phase, we build it where you running away at the start, you can't do it. You okay. can't just go faster than me. So okay. you start, we start, I'm behind you, you're in the red zone. Yep. And you want to close the distance, get close enough to me that I can't fire my weapon. That's in exactly that other right. green zone, right? The close green zone. Yeah, well, he's behind me. My goal is to... Take take that six thousand feet separation and make it zero. Yeah, or as close to it as I can get. Yeah, it's like closing the distance in jujitsu, basically. Don't without. you? Okay, don't you? When you hit a brake turn, and I'm slow, doesn't that make me further away from you? No, because I'm turning back towards you. You're behind me. I'm rolling my plane and pulling it directly into your plane. And, and I'm literally gonna point right at you as hard as I can and take whatever that I can get, whatever that 6,000 feet is, and close as much distance as I can as fast as I can. And I'm not gonna get much, but I'm gonna get something. What's the turning radius of an F-18? Uh, it's totally airspeed dependent, but at the speeds that, that we're talking about, the turning radius is probably 3,000, 4,000 feet. Dang. That's tight. Yeah, well, when you're slower, it's much tighter. The slower you get, the shorter your radius is. Okay. And so even that point that you made about the turning radius, that's a massive calculation. You're getting to Boyd right there. I have to know what your airplane is capable of doing at 18,000 feet, at 400 knots, in full afterburner. Because it's different than what your airplane can do at 10,000 feet, at 250 knots. And it varies in every three-dimensional plane, it varies. And I have to figure out, I have to be able to determine what your airplane is capable of doing and base my maneuver, part of my maneuver, based on that. That's why these simple moves are so complex in terms of implementation, getting it right, because there's so many things going on. Because even your physical ability in your aircraft changes based on your altitude and your airspeed. It's constantly a variable. It isn't, your F-18 just does this. Every single altitude, every single airspeed, every single throttle position has a different output capability that you're, you're able to, to generate. Dramatic differences? Yeah, it's very dramatic. What an airplane can do at 15,000 feet versus what an airplane can do at 5,000 feet is dramatic. Big per difference. Percentage-wise, just rough percentage-wise. Um, you probably have, your turn radius is probably a third the size at low altitude than it would be up at altitude. Mm -hmm. So instead of you're talking three to 4,000 feet, you're talking closer to and I'll just keep it generic, but you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred window, much, much, much smaller. Okay, so we get done with our first three engagements on my first flight. Mm -hmm. I did, I did whatever job, you know, I did a pretty crappy job because no one does it the first time. That's right. Okay, so now we come back in for the debrief, and what do we look? Are we looking at a dry erase board? Are we are we picking up the little planes with the sticks on them? Both. You're looking at a straight up dry erase board with colored pens. Do we have video? Yep, and we got video. We've got the, what's called the HUD view, essentially the first person view of the pilot's view of both aircraft. Do you replay like the radar as well or not really? Not in the one-on-one phase. Because it's two-dimensional? Yeah, well it's not that it's two-dimensional, it's that um, you know, there's only one aircraft, so in terms of how you're managing that system is not that important. When you account for how well you shot your weapons, you might look at that, but 95% of what you're looking at is just the altitude and the airspeed and the angle of attack of each airplane through that pilot's view. Okay, so now you're debriefing me. How much do I, as the student, 
how, what percentage you go, okay, Jocko, what'd you see up there? Mm-hmm. You've got, how many points do you have on your checklist? Of Me as mistakes an in- that I made. Instructor, um, 20. Okay. How many do I get? How many do you say, you tell me to debrief, how many do I? And I'm a humble guy yeah, and, I, yeah. and I have a good attitude and I'm trying to give you a good percentage. Do I get, do I get seven? Do yep. I get 10? I was going to say five or six on day one. You're going to get five or six. You're going to get the big ones. Mm-hmm. You're going to get the big ones. You, look, again, you know these maneuvers. You've been flying F-18s for three years. You, you've been through a, a training course. You're going to get all the big ones for the most part. You know, here and there, we, 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 some folks kind of get overwhelmed, but for the most part, you've got the big ones. You're now doing an assessment of me. Like this is just in your own head. Because are we paired up for the whole time we're at Top Gun? Is it you and me? No. No? But you're going to see me yep. five more times, eight yep. more times, whatever the numbers. You're looking at me and you're going, eh. Or you're going, hmm, guy's got some potential. He's not bad. Is that based on my experience? Is that based on uh, uh, the time I've gotten the aircraft? Is it based on, hey, this guy's got a little natural ability? Is yeah, it all the above? I think it's all the above, man. It, it, it is. I've listened to you talk about this when you first lock up in jujitsu. In jujitsu, mm-hmm. and y- you you don't know a hundred percent of this other guy, but right. you know a lot yeah. right away. Like yeah. right away, it's the exact same thing. Almost on that first turn, when I'm the instructor and I'm looking over my shoulder on your very first break turn. I'll get about 75% of what I need to know about you in that turn. And sometimes it's like, oh man, okay. This is Got gonna it. be a, lots of learning. Yeah, and that's just like, damn, that was that was pretty good. And you can feel that in a very same way in an airplane. It does not tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. But it gives you a really good cue and a really good indicator of who that person is in terms of flying the airplane. And that's a big part of it. But I am much less concerned about how well you flew your machine I am about how well you can explain what happened. And so the debrief is still a huge part of what my assessment is about you. And I won't really know what that debrief is going to be like until we get in there. But if you show me, if we lock up and I feel like you're in the game and you fly a really good airplane, I bet you that your debrief is going to be really solid. If I'm out there with a kid who's all over the place, he can barely keep his his plane where it needs to be, it's very likely his debrief is going to be just as bad. You know what's interesting is this. I'm thinking about this idea of when you lock up with someone on the jujitsu mats of justice. Yes, sir. You could lock up with nine different types of people, and they all feel totally different. But the indicators that you're getting are providing you with messaging that you have to have a high depth of knowledge to understand. My clear examples, you get the guy that's just super strong, right? Mm-hmm. And he's super strong, so you feel all this tension, but you know, as soon as you lock up with him, you go, oh, he's strong, he doesn't know what he's doing, right? Like, that's crazy that you can sense he's really strong, but he doesn't have jujitsu. Yeah. You lock up with someone that's all lanky and skinny and pale and just, and you lock up, and they're weak, they're weak, and you lock up with them and you go, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's got some skills. You can tell that when you lock up. Even though the the messaging that you're getting to your brain is totally opposite. They're totally opposite. 
And then occasionally you get someone that you lock up and you're like, oh, this person's strong and they know jujitsu. This is gonna be fun. Yeah. <laughs> this is gonna be a, a, a challenge. But it's interesting that you can gather all that from we just, you know, what that lock up and maybe a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of movement. A li- I mean, I'm talking two seconds of movement, three seconds of movement. You're like, okay, I, this is gonna suck. This is gonna be hard. Or, okay, I'm gonna have weather the storm here. This guy's strong, but he's know what he's doing. Th- that's a, I don't know if that's completely unique to jujitsu, and maybe you're getting guys that do you do you notice do you notice that level of understanding based on this guy's you know initial reactions? You get a you get a good read. Uh, the way you described it, I, th- I think, is exactly how I would describe it. You get a good read. It's it it doesn't determine the outcome. You don't know everything, but in those for in in I'll I'll call it the first, you said first three four seconds. Mm-hmm. It's really the first one or two turns. You watch a couple of turns out of a guy, you know what you're dealing with for the most part. And you know what a good turn looks like, and you know what a weak turn looks like. And if a guy gives you two weak turns, you kind of know how it's gonna play out. What, what does a good turn look like? What does a bad turn look like? Uh, a good turn versus a bad turn is, a good turn is his, um, his angle towards you is exactly where it's supposed to be. There's no too high or no too low. It's exactly on the plane that it's supposed to be, down to the, the degree. And you're like, wow, like he gave me, he gave away nothing in that turn. Because I can oversteer. You can, you can oversteer. I you can, can understeer. That's right. You can do both. You can pull not enough. You can pull too much. You can overturn. You can underturn. You could be a little late on your afterburner. You could be a little early on your afterburner and get going a little too fast, and it opens up your circle even bigger, which gives me even more room. And so. The margin of that, of the four or five things that you're in control of, you got to get them. Now hold on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bro. you just said it gives you more room. It gives you more room because I hit. I thought you, I thought you wanted to have more room. Oh no, you want to close? Okay, I got it. I got it. No, I'm, it's 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 definitely confusing to me. Yeah, yeah. and and I I need to kind of maybe as we keep talking, I'll try to. Cr- there's a lot of what we're talking about here in this one against one that's that's really cool and, and reveals a lot of things, but it's a really small part of what we're asking folks to do at Top Gun mm-hmm. and what you're really trying to train to. And I need to just explain it a little bit sim- more simply and, 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 and more rudimentary in a way that, hey, what the objectives are so that as we talk more about what Top Gun is, it'll make more sense. It's just, it's not quite as simple as I want to close the gap and you want to close the gap. What I'm really trying to maneuver to is a place where I can employ a weapon. Mm -hmm. And now there's like, this weapon has this minimum max range. Mm -hmm. This weapon has this minimum max range. And I might try to start for a gunshot, but like, oh, that's going to be hard. So maybe I'll maneuver to a missile shot. Well, this missile has this envelope. Well, I'm outside of that, but this missile has another envelope. So there's a lot of overlapping things. I think the biggest takeaway is, is that in order for me as the defender, or you as the attacker, the offensive airplane, for either of us to succeed in our role, the margin of error at Top Gun is really small. The capacity to identify your mistakes and those errors is what the real test is. And that happens in the debrief. But you can fly a plane against another aircraft and look over the horizon and watch you fly. I could fly against you and I can tell from the way you move your plane through the sky how good you are. And I can see it, and I can feel it, and I can watch it, and I can calculate it, and I can most of the time, in the first two turns, tell you exactly how the fight's gonna play out. 
Now, if you show up and you give me those first two turns are every bit as good as mine. Now it's like, man, I don't know how this is going to, now you're in a real fight. Student against instructor, it just doesn't happen. Yes, they just happening. can't bring that level of capability and that performance. You're never contemplating the outcome. You're mostly contemplating how well they minimize their errors and how well they optimize their performance to give away as little as possible. Okay, so in the debrief, you're like, hey, uh, you know, I, y- you, you pulled too hard. Here's what happened. Look right here. here you see, you see this. You pulled too hard. You, that's why I'm drifting out of the screen or whatever because you pulled too hard. Yeah. And, uh, is this something I go? Okay, cool. Got it. Is it? A, is it a relatively easy thing for me to note? And I'm learning yeah. it. It's like, yep. oh, I mean, in jujitsu, I'd say, hey, Echo, you know, you're, uh, you need to get, you need to squeeze your knees together, right, on an arm lock. Hey, you, you, you could have done better, but you, you, your knees were loose. Squeeze your knees next time. And that's something he can factually start doing like at yes. that next arm lock he, he tries it again and boom he tightens the knees and he gets it so this is a similar it, level of correction and ability to to make those corrections yeah it's almost immediate because everything i'm telling you you understand i'm not teaching you a concept and i'm not showing you a move that you don't know i'm revealing a little bit of an error that you know hey what you did here was just like hey you need it you need to have your hips here and you need to have your arm here but you you get that you're like oh man I can actually recall that my hips weren't where you said. That makes sense now that I'm seeing this. And typically the way you would have that work is, hey, do you think you're early or late on this entry here? Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, I'm super late. I'm like, yeah, why do you think you're late? Well, first I saw your airplane kind of move, which tells me I'm late. But I also look up and you're doing f- this airspeed, 470. Hey, you know if you're doing 470, you should have turned already, right? So what's a key? And so like, hey, I need to start this turn sooner and I need to look for different things. And he can go out in the very next flight and almost immediately make that correction. So that's good. So where, we, where we're at right there is, I liked, I caught this. I saw your airplane move, so I knew I was late. I've said this about jujitsu. If you have to think about the move, you're too late. If I take a second, if I go, oh, Echo's arm is available right now, I think I'm gonna go for it, he already defended it. Yeah, I had to have felt it and, and acted on it. That's the same right. thing? That's exactly the same thing. What do you see? Yeah. What do you see? What's a little indicator? The, so the indicator is if I'm far enough away, as you're turning, so you're, you're offensive, if I'm far enough away and you're watching me and you're mm-hmm. looking for a cue on when you should start your turn, if I'm far enough away, I kind of just, I, I appear to just be rotating in the sky. Because I'm so far, you don't see it, you don't see the lateral movement, you don't see my airplane moving across the sky, I almost appear to be stationary. But the closer I get, and you can picture this, like seeing something far away doesn't have a high crossing rate, and something like a car. You look at a car a couple miles away, you don't see it moving back and forth, and as it gets close, you see this movement back and forth, and it's a lot easier to see. What we tell people is you look for the cue that when he stops being stationary in the sky and starts to move across the sky, you're at the range at which you should start to turn your airplane. The problem is, is I'm sitting there staring at you going, okay, I'm waiting for him to move. I'm waiting for him. Okay, I see him starting to move and then you're you're late. And so it's that visual cue of rotating to translating through the sky, which occurs at an exact range. It's, It's a mathematical range at which you can see that. You have about a second to, res- to to be on time, and if you're a second early or a second late, you've missed that window. And if you're looking for it, it's too late. You're you're looking for uh, the attitude 
Is that the right word? The attitude of the aircraft? No, you're looking for the 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 way the aircraft moves. I would call it the crossing rate. Mm-hmm. So if I'm five miles away from you and I'm staring at you, mm-hmm. you could be moving pretty aggressively, but I don't have to move my head to keep up with you. You're so far away, you're just a little dot. You're just moving. The closer I get, the more it's obvious I can, oh, he's actually moving back and forth. You know, these really small turns, actually, the closer I get are huge turns. And so at some point, the turn of you rotating through the sky actually appears to be moving across the sky got it that range i'll say it roughly a mile just keep it simple that's the point at which you can you can that transition from rotating to moving that's about at that mile and you have to know where that is as soon as that happens you have to start turning and i'm i'm teaching you to look for that now you already know that's you already know what that is you can explain it you can teach it but it's the ability to do it against an aircraft moving as dynamically and as aggressively as I'm going to be when you're fighting me is where the challenge comes from. And to prepare for this, to come to school, a lot of the guys you've been flying with don't show you the, the optimal maneuvers. They show you a pretty good maneuver, but not an ideal maneuver. And that's just because their lack of ability? They're just not as good. And you know, you've talked about when, when guys like Dean train to go fight in the UFC, they don't just have one training partner. They have one guy who's exceptionally good at maybe this one thing. He's really good at grappling. Maybe this guy's really good at striking. Maybe this guy's really good at jujitsu, and he's gonna train to be really good in all those things as opposed to just his training partner. Well, he's a little weak in this, but he's my training partner. Mm-hmm. Hey, if my training partner has some strengths here, but he's not great here, you're gonna show up to Top Gun, and we're talking about this one particular skill, you're gonna get overwhelmed. All right, so how many flights do we do like this where we're just one-on-one? Five, six. Do you ever go, as the instructor, do you ever go on offense? Or is that just too easy or is that part of it? That's part of it. That's that's the next flight. The next flight. Yep. Once you... You don't let me get another crack at the title? Uh, well, if you if your flight is so bad that you couldn't even stay behind me, we're gonna go do it again. But as soon as you prove to me, hey, you've demonstrated that you're good enough, you understand what's happening, that you can maintain this offensive position, we're moving on. Didn't you say zero people execute a good turn? Zero, but perfect the, turn. So a marginal turn still keeps me in the game? You're gonna have four different sets, so I'm hoping that each one gets a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have one of those three ranges that wasn't good, I'm gonna have you do it again. Hey, let's do that 9,000 foot one real quick, let's do it again, show, show me one more. And if you're in the window and then in the debrief, you can really explain to me what your errors were. And I truly think that you understand what those were. I don't need you to go do it again. Mm. If I finish the debrief and I can tell you're lost, I can tell you don't really know what happened and you didn't really execute and can't explain why, we're gonna go refly that until you do it again. How many out of 10, how many would you have to reload? Out of 10 pilots, how many do you have to reload and say, you know what? Eight, maybe nine. Nine out of ten. My, my, my class. Why'd you say is the next flight we're already doing something else then? It sounds like we need to do this shit again. Well, <laughs> what we skipped is something I, I've mentioned to you once before. Um, most of those reloads, you don't even get to the debrief. We do what's called an immediate refly. We land, we go back, and I say, Jocko, don't take off your flight gear. Mm-hmm. Sign for this airplane, we're going right back out and doing it Don't again. you wanna tell me what I did wrong? I'm gonna, and in, in the time that it takes to walk from the airplane to maintenance to sign for the airplane and go back to the airplane in that 
15 minutes, you're not going to talk for the entire 15 minutes. Hey, I want you to start looking for this. You're consistently late. Look for this cue. Pay attention to this. Hey, I need you to slow down, relax. You're going too fast here. You're going too slow here. Take it. And I'm going to give you three or four things to think about, and we're going to go do it again. And that's usually enough to get you to kind of get back your composure and get back to doing it again. And my first, when I went through as a student, only one student in my class got past the first flight on the first try. One guy. Was his name Dave? It was not. <laughs> it that would have been pretty epic it was, if it, it would have been. It was pretty epic. Um, it was not me. Uh, I was lucky enough that I had one refly, and it was that very first flight. I reflew that first flight on immediate refly, and I never reflew a, a flight again, which was which was kind of crazy. Did you kind of want to get more reflies so you get more time flying? No, I didn't. I wanted to pass the flight on the first try. Uh, they, got, we could tell the story some of the time, but I got plenty of flight time. But I wanted to pass. I wanted to do well enough on my first flight to pass. That's what mm-hmm. I wanted to do when I was there. Okay, so now we finished with this one-on-one. Yep. What, what's? Well, we finished with the first flight. Now, so I was on offense. Now you're going to go on offense, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to shake you. Yeah, you're going to be on defense. We're just going to swap roles. And all I'm doing is doing a freaking tight turn. That's it. There's no shock. There's no dri- jive. There's no, it seems, why does it seem like that just, like I could do something a little bit better? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, how come you guys couldn't think like me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I the, I think the jujitsu parallel is probably pretty good. If you and I are going out there, and I'm like just gonna, and I just start getting wild with you, and just start to throw these crazy things, and and I'm trying to throw these crazy moves your way to try to uh, shake you. Is it really gonna be a problem for you? No. It's is it gonna make it easier for you? Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's gonna make it easier than if I just do like exactly what I'm supposed to do. And there's sort of one or two things that I really have to do. I have to put my body in this place. I have to put my weight in this place for this to work. And if I don't have those two, all the other stuff that I'm doing for you is just like, what are you doing, man? Like, it's just almost like, it's just, it does it does nothing but make it easier for you to attack my position. That being said, if you're on defense as the instructor, you can do a, a break, a ditch, a deck, uh, a deck transition mm-hmm. and then another break and then another like you can pile these moves on top of one another right oh yeah i mean this happens multiple times in a flight yeah you're doing ditch and ditch and ditch and the, you're it's happening several times it's not just three moves that those moves so might happen several so times those are the moves then yes the moves are those so are the is, moves so in jiu-jitsu there's a really easy way to explain this escaping the mount right when you escape the mount you can either basically you can either Opa, the guy over your left shoulder, over your right shoulder, you can knee escape or you can elbow escape the right, their right leg or your or their left leg, right? That's you, you can go in any one of those four spots. And you know, this is actually Dean Lister material. You can go you so you have to try A first. When it doesn't work, you you can try B. When that doesn't work, you can try C. When that doesn't work, you can try D. When that doesn't work, you go back to A. But the way you actually escape is A, D, B, C, D, B, C, B, D, D, B, A, C, B, D, boom, you're out. That, that's what, so this is the same thing? Uh, yeah, when you said, hey, teach me the moves, I'm making it simple, there's basically three moves. Now you, you are going to apply them throughout that flight, but you're not gonna come up with like, oh man, I'm gonna come up with some crazy thing that no, he's go, never go, seen before. 
it, it doesn't work and it actually it makes it worse for you so if, if you're mounted and I'm trying to get you off and I just am flailing right I roll over on my stomach or do some as the offender you're just like dude you're not helping Here, go just do a Let's because just truly a. the best thing you can do is just do a break that's, that's right. The best thing you that's can the do. The best thing you the can do. The best thing you do is do a break and then do a ditch. Yeah. And then do another break. Yep. And then do another ditch. Yep. And then do another break. Yeah. You you only and you're out of moves. By the way, the three moves. Yeah. I'm and 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 listen. So, sometimes you can't do a ditch if you're too close to the ground. The ditch isn't an option. It's not available to you. Mm-hmm. If you do it, you will die. Period. So it is not in your rep- repertoire. Do you, how much do you use a change of pace? Like in basketball. You know, when you're dribbling down the court, you change pace, you go, you, you're going fast and you slow down for a second, then you go fast again. Is there any of that? Yeah, not really. Is that because it's too hard to control the rate of speed of the aircraft in a short enough time that it will make them react in a proper way? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a big part of it. And, and so getting from fast to slow is pretty easy. Getting from slow to fast is harder. And so the change of pace to me is more about I'm going to, I'm gonna try to get some airspeed back. Let's say I'm going 200 knots and I'd love to be 400 knots. I can't just go from 200 to 400. So I'm gonna gotta go two to 220. And that may take a second and I'm gonna steal that 20 knots. And then we're gonna swirl around a little bit and then I'm gonna see an opportunity to go, ooh, 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 Jocko gave me a little bit of room here. I'm gonna go from 220 to 250 and that'll be three seconds. Boom, I got it. And I'm gonna steal that and I'm gonna get 250 and I'm gonna, so that change of pace is me trying to steal but if you ever apply so much pressure to me effectively that I can't do that, I don't get that speed back. And you can actually fly an aggressive enough airplane to keep me from doing that, that I don't get to just steal that, that to dictate the pace. So the pace of that, of, of changing airspeeds, it comes at a pretty big cost. And so you have to do it really intelligently when you do that and steal it every chance you get. What about when Dan was talking about going vertical? Yeah. So there's a really unique thing that they discovered at Top Gun, they talked about the egg, about this vertical fight, is the way your airplane maneuvers vertically, going from pointed up, so pointed high to low, is A, your airplane is typically very slow at the top of a loop, which makes sense, you lose that energy to get up there, so the slower you are, the smaller your radius is, so the tighter you can turn, but you also have something we call God's G. So it is pulling you back towards the ground. So the radius of your turn at the top of a loop is way smaller than your radius at the bottom of a loop because you're fighting against G going from low to high. G is helping you going from high to low. So if there's ever a place where you're above someone and they're below you and all the other factors are relatively even, your turn at the top is better than his turn at the bottom and it's typically a more advantageous place to be. And so the key would be is how can I maneuver to a place where I can climb above you without putting myself at risk to your weapons and then maneuver above you and take advantage of that free G-force that's available to me going from high to low where you're fighting against that and you're losing it uh, going from low to high. And that's kind of the goal of that vertical fight that he described. So is that something that you would do? Yeah, I mean, that, that's something you could do. So he, he brought up an interesting thing and you mentioned this with, with Boyd. I think the way you said it was exactly right, man. So F-18, F-16, F-15, MiG-29, SC-27, all these airplanes in this generational world that I was in at Top Gun during that time, they're all pretty good. And you know what? The F-16 is a little bit faster than an F-18. 
but the F-15's got a little bit better turn rates. And it's no different than, hey, maybe you're stronger than Echo. But Echo's got, you know, a little better flexibility. And maybe you've got uh, some capacity that he doesn't, but none of that is exclusive, meaning you don't get to just beat him because you're stronger. Because he can counter that strength that you have with something that maybe you don't have. So on paper, all these airplanes have different strengths and weaknesses, but none of them are so absolute that you get to just beat me because your machine is better than me. It's always, always, always comes down to the pilot. Depending on who, what type of plane I'm flying against, that vertical move is an awesome move. Some airplanes, it's the last thing I want to do, so I won't go up there at all. When Boyd comes to his conclusion, wasn't our aircraft in Korea worse than the other yes. aircraft? In most ways, yes. Most of the then, ways you then, then, then how was that not just a red flag that, hey, actually it depends on what the pilot does? Well, in Boyd's defense, Boyd kind of understood that. Boyd had, the way Boyd explained it when he talked about EM theory that, that mm -hmm. Dan was talking about, he explained it in somewhat of a different way. He also evolved into a different airplane, the Phantom, but... Boyd, make no mistake, Boyd understood that just because your machine turned faster, climbed higher, didn't mean you're going to win. Boyd understood that, without a doubt. Because we know that there's other areas that we're stronger in. Other areas that we're stronger in, and I can actually assess in real time how well you're performing your aircraft. So I can observe and go, hey, your airplane can actually do this, but you're not making but it do that. Can't. So guess what? You're essentially giving that to me. So the strength on paper that says, you know, you can jump this high, well, in theory, you should have that extra three, that three or four inches that you can jump that I can't, but you're not jumping that high. And I can see that and assess that. And I'm going to take that from you and I'm make that your advantage is no longer your advantage. So how does Boyd then get to, hey, don't fight a, a MIG with a F4 Phantom? I mean... The way I perceive that is a failure to recognize a how much training matters, how much, how critical it is to be able to observe all these tiny little nuanced things that by themselves may not appear to be a big deal. But if I find 20 of them in a fight and I put them all together, it's a massive advantage. And what this, what, what science says an airplane can do isn't the limiting factor. Now there are some limits, but when you build an EM diagram, you don't account for Dan Pedersen's tail slide. It's not in the EM diagram, it's not in the science, because the science says the airplane is no longer flying. And these guys are like, yeah, that may be true, but watch this. I can go pure vertical to my tail, the airplane slides back down, I can pitch it around with my rudder, none of that is in the diagram, and I can make my airplane do something the paper says it can't, and when I do it to you, you will not know how to react, and I'm gonna kill you. So that combination of the mentality and the mindset with the recognition that a fight is 20 things pieced together and all of them together is how you get to the outcome is why Top Gun is what Top Gun is. If I'm, if I'm looking at that, like I just don't understand how I don't figure out that I, I can beat a MiG with an F4 if I know, well, uh, let, me, let me take it one step further. How do the engineers not know this? How do the engineers not say, hey, here's, here's what you can do with one of these aircraft? In that era, um, I think the way Dan Yank describes it is th they didn't 
They didn't have the right mentality. Mm. These airplanes were not even designed to be dogfighters. There was a they were convinced that that era was over. That's kind of why guys like in the Air Force, guys like Robin Olds are such legends because in the face of an entire industry and in the face of an entire era of, of, of the military mindset, he recognized that the, val, you know, the, the thing that makes us better is how well we train and how, how aggressive we are with our machines, not what you tell me the machine can do. And that's why guys like Yank and the dudes that started Top Gun and guys like the Robin Olds of the world, that's why those guys are legendary because they fought against a trend that said, this is a machine that's not designed to turn. If you turn with a MIG, you're going to lose. It's like, well, we're turning with MIGs and I'm not going to lose. So I'm going to figure this thing out. And some guys did. And that was the origin of Top Gun is when everybody else saying you can't do this. He said, not only can we, we have to. And that's pretty cool. The the other I, I'm just thinking of uh, of the test pilots right because because those guys are taking these birds and the the engineers are saying it can do X Y Z and they're taking it way beyond yeah. those limitations especially in that era that's what I'm saying yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The, because nowadays maybe with commute computer modeling and AI yeah you can maybe get a little closer but back then it was like okay here's the bird here's what we think it can do what do you got dude. Those guys back then in the Jaeger era, those guys would get in the airplanes and didn't even know if they were going to fly. I mean, th- what they knew on paper versus what was going to happen, there was a big <laughs> gap there. Those test pilots of that generation, you know, that right stuff generation, I mean, they were doing crazy things and having the discoveries they made and what they were able to do. Now, there is so much more modeling, so much more science behind it that. Look, there's still a community out there. They're doing incredible things, but typically when you strap on an airplane, you have a pretty good idea of how it's going to perform and how it's going to behave. Nowhere near like what they were dealing with in that era. How did you feel when you when you were flying the F-22 and the F-35? How how much were you saying, hey, you guys told me X, Y, Z. Let me give you the real numbers over here from from Good Deal. Yeah, well, that that was kind of my life in the Raptor. I was an operational test pilot, so not a developmental guy. That's the, you know, there's developmental tests, which is literally they build it and they want to just go see if this thing works. Our job is once they figured out the machine worked, which is the Raptor, operational test pilots go out there and figure out how to use this thing and operationally test it in operationally relevant environments. So not the science, but the operational piece of it. And you, look, you had to know the science. You had to know what the airplane could do mechanically. But the coolest thing about being an operational pilot was taking an airplane like a Raptor and then finding everything you didn't like about it, everything you thought was wrong about it, everything that the science said was good but you knew wouldn't work in combat, and we got to identify and fix those things. And that was awesome because you took this awesome machine and put it in, in relevant operational scenarios and you beat the crap out of it to see how it would do. Give me an example, unclassified, of like, hey, you took your Raptor out and you said, you know what? You need to make some adjustments over here. And yeah. I mean, I know the acquisition systems in the military is like crazy. Would you get real-time fixes on these birds? Yeah, some would get pretty quick. Um, you know, we had to do a lot of prioritize and execute back when we were doing operational tests. So we'd get this airplane, it'd have, we'd have this list of 30 or 40 things on this tracker of all the things wrong with it. And oftentimes, what we thought was the number one problem would take the longest and cost the most money. But problem five, six, and seven combined were less 
in problem one and they could fix it in a matter of days. And so we hit problem five, six, and seven and got really quick turnarounds and made a ton of incremental changes that over time, over a two, three year period, completely changed the capability of the airplane. We didn't always get everything we wanted. We didn't always get all the money we needed and we don't always have time to make all the fixes. But we had a really cool feedback loop with the engineers to fix the things that we said were important and they could fix it really fast. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll run you back to Top Gun. All right. Um, <laughs> you're putting me through training. Yep. And you're judging you know, Echo and me. Okay. And you, you get your first lockup with both of us. You do your little assessment. What, prioritize and execute, what's the number one differentiator between Echo's Top line capability. So you're going to get Echo. Your your new goal is just to train Echo and train me to be as good as we possibly can get. What is the what's the quality that you're like? Oh, Echo's good at this. He's going to be able to excel in in this, and he's going to do a little bit better better than Jocko because I can see Jocko's kind of lagging in his ability to X. Yeah, I would say recall. Uh, from because remember, I'm teaching an instructor. I'm teaching a teacher here. My job is to make you and Echo teachers mm-hmm. in, in this, not just how to fly the airplane, but how to teach flying the airplane is recall. Can you tell me what happened? All the things that happened. And recall is connected very closely to something we call situational awareness. So do you really know all the things that are going out there in three-dimensional space with all the airplanes in real time? The more you can process what's happening, the more you can recall what's happening, the better you are gonna be able to teach this and understand what actually is, is going on. You could be really good in an airplane and maybe a little bit better than him just pure moving that machine around, but if you don't really know what's happening around you the way that he does, eventually he's gonna, out, he's gonna outperform you. So it sounds like I need to have the ability to detach. I would agree with that. Did you identify that while you were in the in Top Gun in the Marine Corps, did you ever identify like, hey, oh, I can see this guy gets all wrapped up, doesn't know what's totally. happening, but this guy over here, he's you know, he separates his brain from his body and what's happening, and he can see the big picture. Yeah, I mean, we what used, did you call it? We used situational the, awareness. Well, the the term is situational awareness. When people lost situational awareness or no longer did what you just described, we just call it. We'd say looking through the soda straw. I mean, which is very similar to, you know, you, I think you guys use the phrase front sight. Um, well, front sight focus isn't the best because front sight focus is, is a positive thing right. because you're doing it in order to aim your gun. We say you're, you're target fixated. Target fixated. Right, but then yeah. we say, you know, you're staring down the scope of your weapon, yeah. which that is exactly what you're talking about. You're looking at it through a straw. Same thing. Yeah. And I think it's just, just same, different phrase, same exact meaning. What that typically meant is that Echo or you, whoever's looking through the soda straw, would just start to stare at one piece of information. And in an airplane, you got a whole bunch of things going on inside and outside of the airplane. Plus, you're hearing things. So you've got all these different inputs. And I could tell when you are, or Echo's looking through the soda straw without even seeing you, because I'll say something to you and you either won't respond. You know, you'll respond really late. You'll do something wrong. You know, really, and, <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> I hate this. You know why I hate this? Because I know it's on video. Right, it's on video. Like you're like, oh, here's me calling you, you know, here's me calling you again, here's yeah. me calling you again, and I'm going, oh, yeah. It's, I know I was not detached. It's crazy. What do you tell me? So we get back. I was staring through the soda straw. What do you tell me? A, what, what's your debrief point, and then what's your what's your corrective measures that you're going to give me? 
when you're looking through the soda straw? Yep. So the we debrief- We get done with the flight. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking through the soda straw. I didn't respond to your calls. I missed a bunch of stuff. What do you tell me? So the way, I, I'm going to have a pretty good idea in the, while we're flying around that you're doing that. And I'm going to know because you're missing calls. You're not going the way you're supposed to. You're not hearing things. You're not doing things. But when we get back, the first thing I'm going to do is say, hey, tell me what happened on that flight. Why don't you just draw it out for me? Just run me through what Ooh. you saw. And that is the standard debrief. The first thing we do is recreate the flight. And you get a marker. You get up in front of the flight. You get red pens and blue pens. You get good guys and bad guys. And you just need to draw it. We started here. We went here. You started here. And mm-hmm. and that may be two airplanes. That may be 16 airplanes. But I'm going to need you to just show me your recall. And that's going to be my first real indicator, other than me watching in real time, that you've, you've missed some things. And so after you draw it up and just say, this is what happened, then we're going to put up the tapes. So before I get into your and say, hey, you missed this and missed that, what I really am going to do is give you a little bit of a chance to now watch the tape and go, ooh. Hang on, stop tape for a second. I drew that we went off to the north and turned here with this group, but I'm watching the tape. Hey, that didn't happen. Now, I as an instructor, going, okay, that's a really good sign. Mm-hmm. Jocko maybe wasn't altogether there, but Jocko can self-assess. He's detached in the debrief, and he's, he's self-aware. The likelihood that you're going to go out and get better on the next fight is actually really high, and I don't need to give you a ton of debrief. And I might reinforce and go, hey, that's a good catch, man. Listen for the audio on the next call. Did you hear the call that there was a, a maneuver in the north? And he's like, no, man. Jocko says he missed it. Okay, these are all good things. Mm-hmm. If you draw it up, clearly you're missing things. You run through the entire tape and don't make the connection. Now you and I need to start back over. Mm-hmm. Then I need to draw what's up there. And, and I'm going to put some, some big circles on the board and go, hey, we're going to really analyze this engagement here. And I'm going to play the tape and go, okay, stop. What do you see? Where's his airplane? Where'd you depict it? And I'm going to show you that you missed something. And I'm going to have to kind of run through that whole thing in detail with all this data to show what happened to try to get you to realize that you're missing things. And then what I'm going to tell you moving forward is you are more likely to start to lose situational awareness after we get past to this phase. So once the first turn happens, you tend to get too connected or too engaged or too boresighted on this thing. And I can start to figure out what triggers you to get emotional, what triggers you to get Boresighted, what triggers you to look through the soda straw and to start to call this out for you and get you to think about it before we go do it and then see how well you can adapt to that. How well can you actually pull yourself out of that, detach, and we'll go do that again and see what you do in the next one. So I, you know, because you're not in an airplane, because you're, you know, in a fake urban environment or you're out in the desert, like this is a conversation I had more times than I can count with a young leader. Hey man, you're you're all caught up in this. Here's what you need to do. You need to put your weapon in high port. You need to take a step back off the line and you need to turn your head and look around. Yeah. So, it see, it seems like that is a clearer form of instruction. It's an actual thing that you can do because it's a different environment. Is there anything that you could give them more directly to get them to take a step back? Put their head on a swivel look around detach. Is there anything better that you could tell them? You're you, I see what you're doing with hey Here's all the things you missed and I did that too I, I would do it with my uh, little pocket recorder and yeah, the other thing yeah. we, we had these laser gun We had these laser tag system and they had little GPS's on them and those little GPS's would track where you are And then we could replay the whole thing on Google Earth and these guys would have no idea. I didn't know my element was over there. I didn't know this guy. And so so that's the same thing. That's the same technique yeah. of listen, man. 
you, you didn't know the Salem was over here. You didn't know that the assaulters already left the building and you didn't see where, you didn't know this stuff was going on. And they go, yeah, I need to, I need to pull back. But then I'd say, listen, man, you need to get off your gun. You need to go to high port. You need to start looking around. You need to start paying attention to what's going on big picture. Is there any instruction you can give like that while I'm flying a, an F-18? It's pretty uncommon that in the middle of a training flight that I as an instructor, I'm going to give you cues to do the things that you're supposed to do. There are a few exceptions. But I mean, yeah. I could do it after the after the op. I mean, this oh, isn't this oh, isn't okay. always yeah, this yeah. isn't always like, hey, I'm right there. I'm Got after it. the op. I'm going, bro. Oh, you can't oh. let this happen. Here's what you need to do. All, all the time, all the time, and that's sort of the beauty of the tapes. You know, one of the crazy things is the way that the tape machines used to run before is that the cameras would be kind of connected to the canopy and record the screen, and in the reflection of the screen, you could see the pilot's head, literally see his head. And I go, hey, listen. Every time we're approaching a merge within 10 miles, I can see you staring at this display at 10 miles. So what I want you to think on this one, every time you get, and, and the reason 10 miles is important is that we had a radio call that would come in and say, somebody would say 10 miles. And he wouldn't be hearing that call. 10 miles is the call that's telling everybody, start looking outside. Start literally looking up and out so you can stop looking at your screen and start finding the actual airplane itself. Hey, I want you, I want you to give the 10 mile call. You're going to be the 10 mile call today and get that guy to, and I would say, this is a way to get you out of the cockpit and up and out. And we would, it probably had a hundred different tricks and hundred different ways to give a guy something to think about. Hey, this is where you get wrapped up. And this is a tool and a technique that you can use to take yourself out of being too attached and to detach 10 mile call is an awesome way to do that. An engaged call is an awesome way to do that. Anything that you could help with that guy and, and the debrief, because these are Good guys. These are guys you built really strong. Ten weeks is a long time to share a lot of space, very little space with somebody. You got to know these students really, really well. You could have really honest, straightforward conversations. You could build really good relationships. They would come over on Saturdays. You'd barbecue and you'd just talk flying, and you could tell them all the things. And you wanted them to succeed, and you would give them everything you could you could to help them get better. And what did you call this recall? Recall. Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, which is the massive indicator for I'm detached and I'm actually paying attention to everything that's going on. 100%. If you are not detached, you will not you won't know what's happening other than maybe what's happening inside your cockpit. But Top Gun isn't about just you and your airplane, it's you leading a formation of 16 planes. And you need to know what's going on with all those 16 planes, no different. And, and I'm not saying that you have to know every step that they're taking, every turn that they're making. You know, there are times that you were detached from your task and they're maneuvering, but you know what's happening. These guys are shifting to this building. These guys are heading up to the roof. These guys are bogged down. Mm -hmm. There's a problem over here. Hey, I need to now pull some resources over here because there's no resistance over here. And these guys are kind of doing nothing and shift them up and that you can manage your task unit in real time and have a really good idea of what's going on with all of them without being with any of them. And in the exact same way, that's completely trainable. Does, um, does athlete, how much does athletic ability play a role? You know, I don't, I don't know if anybody has ever, that I've ever seen like the connection between that specifically, but if you're a good athlete, you were probably a good pilot. <laughs> and if you, you, you were a good pilot, you were probably a good athlete. And we used to say all the time, the, the joke would be when people were asking, 
should this guy come to Top Gun? The joke would be is, hey, can he throw a football? Hmm. That's the question we'd ask. And it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I don't yep. really care if you can throw a football. Right. But it was the connection between those th- those two things. And it doesn't mean you had to be a superstar athlete, but you had to be athletic. It's physical. It's physical. You had to be athletic. You had to be physical. You had to be... you. you you had to not be afraid of conflict. And did I care if you were the captain of your football team? And high, n- nobody cared about that stuff. But there was an absolute connection between being athletic and liking athletic competition and being good in the airplane. How about, um, how about eyesight, which I know back in the day was like the component. Chuck Yeager, you know, could like PID yeah, yeah, yeah. bogeys. Dude. So before anyone was even close to seeing them. Same thing? I know you, I know you have really good eyesight. I do. I, I, and I did at the time. I had I had really uniquely good eyesight. I mean, I was picking off. Uh, I could see things in the eye chart that were really good. Mm-hmm. Back and certainly back in the day, that was everything because the only resource they had to find the enemy was their eyeballs. But I would tell you that it, it's still really important. Eyesight was really important. Now, one of the major discoveries that the military came up with in recent decades was that they would let you wear glasses. So... You know, if you did have good eyesight, they would let you fix it. But eyesight was really critical because there's a phase in every fight that transitions from the systems to the visual. And that transition was really hard. It's really hard to look at your screen and then look up and try to account for where that person is in space, clouds and all sorts of different things. And so the sooner you could see that with your eyes, the better. You know, technology has helped without a bunch. There's cues now, little boxes, and you, you can do that. Eyesight's still important. It's not as important as it was before, but it was something that if you if you had if you had good eyes and could determine what's going on at farther ranges, you'd have an advantage. How much does luck play a role? Luck plays a role. It does. Um, I'm a beneficiary of a ton of good luck, you know, all through my entire life. You know, and there's a bunch of cliches and catchphrases about what luck really is. Uh, luck by itself would never would never be enough. It, just getting lucky and and you know the, you'd come back and be like, man, we got lucky on that one. But typically, the lucky things that worked out, you could almost always connect it to a whole bunch of things you did right to get to the point where some things just worked out in your favor. So yeah, do guys get lucky? Did I get? Yeah, I get lucky all the time. But rarely was that by itself an attribute or or a circumstance that was very reliable. Can you utilize, okay, so in jiu-jitsu and really in any endeavor, you can, you, you can wear someone out. Like in jiu-jitsu, you call it gassing them. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that that is a strategy that you would have, hey, I've got a bigger gas tank than you, or I can make you do th- maneuvers that are going to burn more gas. Is that a thing? Yeah. Not really? Dude, no, it's totally. The MiG-29 was notoriously bad on gas. Notoriously. You know what the next worst airplane for gas is? F-18. The F-18. <laughs> so we knew going into our fights that we were always at a disadvantage. And when bigger planes showed up, like we talked about the Su-27, that thing had a ton of gas. It's 100% a consideration. 100%. And th- you, th- you would think about it all the time. Not to mention, in naval aviation, you got to go back to the ship. You were always managing your gas. You had enough. You had enough gas to go back and get back aboard the ship. Not some giant airport with you know eighteen thousand feet of runway. You had to go back and land aboard the carrier, and that was a gas critical endeavor. How many how many carrier landings do you have? Maybe four hundred and fifty. It, it seems like a lot. It, it, 
it's not that much compared. You know, there are carrier guys out there with eight, nine hundred landing, some some close to a thousand. So it seems like a lot, but there's plenty of guys with a lot more than me. Did you ever? Were you ever comfortable with it? I I, I got comfortable during the day for sure. To be totally honest, I never got comfortable with the night landings. Never got to a, a got that comfortable. When I did Afghanistan right after 9-11, we were, on the, we were the night carrier, so all of our operations for about six months were at night. Just by pure, just doing it every single day, it got a lot better. But the night landing was always in the back of your mind. It was always something to kind of contend with psychologically that, that you knew it was out there. <laughs> Uh, this is the first time reading reading uh, Dan's book was look I've been told a thousand time a postage stamp and all these other things and you know it's so hard and it's the hardest thing and blah 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 blah. this book was the first time I really said to myself yeah it has got to be a gut check every single time yeah look I've done a decent amount of flying I've flown a bunch of different airplanes I got to fly with all the services a night carrier landing, there's really nothing else like it, and it is a gut check. And it is a gut check every single time, no matter how many you've done. I got well over 100 night landings, which on a ratio of day to night, like that's a lot of night landings because I happen to be on a night carrier, which most deployments you don't spend the entire deployment at night, and I just happen to be on one of those. It is, it's a gut check for everybody. The pilot, the flight deck, the LSO, the ship, it, the, the night page on a ship, on an aircraft carrier at sea, there is nothing in aviation like it, and it is a gut check for everybody. And it never gets better. It never gets easier. So talk talk me through a little night carrier landing. I will. Yeah, night carrier landing is is kind of the great equalizer in, in naval aviation. Like that's a thing that's out there that every fighter pilot's going to have to do. And no matter what has gone on in your mission, whether it's just a straight up just super simple training mission you could have been by yourself just flying around or you just did six hours in iraq or afghanistan or somewhere else you're going to come back and you're going to land aboard the ship and no matter what you've got going on that that always sits in the back of your mind you got to plan for it you got to account for it you got to manage your fuel for it and you've got to recognize that more than likely the hardest part of your flight no matter what you're doing more often than not it's going to be the last thing you do when you're coming back to the field and you know you're coming back to Marine Corps Station Miramar or wherever, you're not even thinking about the landing. That's just a no-brainer. It's just a no-brainer. Landing a regular plane on a regular runway most of the time is just it's just not hard. Mm-hmm. It's just it's and it's certainly not something you're gonna sweat like, man, I hope I can hope I can land this time. Like it's just not something you think about. So once you figure out how to land an airplane like a like an F eighteen on a regular runway, you just don't really think about it too much. Carrier is totally different. And so it's something you have to think about. You got to compartmentalize. You got to detach from it. But you can't ignore that it's out there either. So you got to think about your fuel. You got to think about your wingmen. You got to think about the other 20 airplanes that are going to be landing on the ship at the same time as you. And the coordination goes along with that. And this is a huge choreography that you, the ship, and the other airplanes have to manage and coordinate. And typically, Typically, the goal is to do it either no comm or min comm. There's very little talking going on in this coordination. You might get to assign an altitude, and you might get assigned what's called a push time when you commence your approach. And that may be all the talking you get up until the time that you're about to land. So 
you're kind of alone, you're self-contained, and you've got to manage all these things. So night landings are, look, man, they're they're legit, and they never get easy. They never get comfortable. The the idea, I've said this before, right? When people say, hey, what makes the SEALs good? Well, I think the thing that makes the SEALs good is that we have to work in the water. Yeah. And the water is the same thing. It's an equalizer. Every every time you're in the water, you don't need an enemy to kill you when you're in the water. You you can The water itself can kill you. When you have to do a mission over the beach, swim in, you know, it's you, your weapons covered in sand, your radios get flooded. There's all there's just all these things that happen. Doing a doing a direct action mission from Humvees compared to doing a direct action mission that you swam over the beach, it's not even comparable. I you could train, you know, you could take a, a, a high school uh, 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 football team and you could train those guys in three or four days to do a pretty decent job doing a direct action mission and, they, and they'd be able to pull it off. To get them to be able to come over, to, to launch from an, a, a, a ship and take Zodiacs over the beach and get on the beach and change out into their new gear and uh, you, you, you'd need months. You yeah. would need months if not longer, you need you need six months, and you'd have a washout rate. You'd have people that are not capable. Because look, on a football team, you, how many people on a football team? The whole team. What high school? Yeah, college. Uh, Let's go college. Hundred, hundred five. A hundred five total. Yeah. Okay, so a hundred five that are going to train to do a land direct action mission. You're going to have five or six that can't do it you know they're 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 they got some issue they're not safe they're just not with it whatever whatever the case may be mm-hmm. you put them in the water and you start swimming over the beach you're looking at you're lo- you're losing 50% of those guys maybe 70% of those guys that are just they can't they, they're not good enough swimmers they're not good enough you know at, in the water they're not comfortable they're they're cold there's so many things that right there is the difference and when i start thinking about landing on aircraft carriers it's got to be somewhat similar because the weather, you're landing on a thing that is moving. <laughs> yeah. Dude, it's, it, that's so true, man. I, I mean, I, I think the thing about the water is when you're operating around the water, you can never, you can't take a time out. You can't pause. You can't just stop for a minute. Look, if I'm coming back to Miramar and there's a problem in Miramar, I got 10 other airports within 30 minutes that I can go to. I can go back over to Yuma where the weather's always perfect. I can go to North Island. I could go to LA. I've got so many different options. And the the water never lets you pause. You cannot pause. You can't just wait. You can't just decide not to do it. There's no divert that's just down the road. <sighs> this This awesome SEAL captain who is of... Prior Marine and a, and a, and and a, and a little bit of a rebellious guy. He gave a speech that I was at, and I don't even want to give any details about where it was at or what was it about. But he he was making a dig at some of the other personnel that that he was working with at the time, and, and he he said it was a great speech. He was saying, "Look, we're in the Navy, and what's different about the Navy is we come from ships, and on a ship." You don't have any choice but to fight. 
there is no retreat on a ship. Those are our roots. Now look, he took the most absolutely <laughs> romantic view that a, that a, a, the most heroic view that a human could ever take about tying, you know, the modern Navy and, and especially the SEAL teams to rooting our character in the fact that on a ship, there is no retreat, there is no surrender. If the ship goes down, we all die. That's our attitude. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about a young Jocko bit getting pumped yeah. up. But fired that's, up. that's what I'm thinking right now is when you're at sea, you can either land on this carrier or you can land on this carrier. That's it. I mean, that's it. There's no other options. Yeah, and if you got a problem or you're running low on gas or you've got a, <laughs> got a mechanical issue that, that's, that's going to create some problems for you, you're going back to the ship. I mean, if you if you take your seals and you load them up in, into into boats and you, you jump off the bigger ship to go do some sort of insertion, and the weather's so bad and the environment's so bad, and then everything like, hey, we can't do this training exercise; it's not safe. The training exercise is canceled. What do you have to do? Yeah, <laughs> we got to go drive those boats into the well deck yes. of a ship in twelve foot seas, which yeah. is a complete nightmare. You're not in a parking lot thinking this was a bad idea; we can't do this, and and you know the the weather is not going to allow this this training mission to happen. Believe so, me, we are we we would say. You know what? Let's just go. Totally. It's easier than trying to get back on that ship. Yeah. And so the thing about carrier landings is there's really, there's no, there's no training and there's no real life. It's just real life all the time. And there's another thing. There's a psychological component about the ship that kind of, it reminds you what it is every time. So you get, you're coming back, you may be over the beach and we, you know, you've done a long mission or, or, or it doesn't matter what you're doing. At some point you end up what's called the stack. And all the stack is, is about 15, 20 miles from the boat at every altitude, you know, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000. There's an airplane at every altitude and they just stack them up from five up to however many there are, up to 20,000 feet or if there's 15 airplanes, something like that. And you just sit in the stack and you've got your gas and somebody will come up on the radio and go, hey, you know, Aircraft 204, your push time is time 1015. Roger that. That's the only call you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So I'm at 9,000 feet. I look at my watch or I look at the clock and I am now waiting until 1015 for me to push. And then there's a very particular route and a particular heading and turns and out. And there's a whole sequence that we all memorize how to do it. And it's not that complicated, but you got to do it. But the entire time, the entire time as you're looking out, you can't see anything. It's just dark. It's just pitch black. Every now and then there's like a nice moon. The water has a little white reflection of the moon, which looks kind of cool, but you can't see the ship. When you're 20 miles from an airport, you see the airport. You see the runway lights. You see the lights that line you up. You see the white lights. You see the control tower. You can see your buildings. When you're 20 miles from the ship, you can't see anything. And then when you're 10 miles from the ship, you still can't see anything. And then you descend down and you do this, the last bit of this approach at night is at like 600 feet over the water and it's pitch black and you're just going towards the Are ship. Are you on 100% instruments at 100% this point? 100% instruments. And, you know, and look, modern airplanes have great instruments. The Hornet is a beautiful instrumented, instrumented, uh, instrumented machine. I'm sure, you know, when, when Yank was talking about back in the Vietnam era, it was more challenging, but you're just flying your instruments. More challenging because homeboy's up there with a red lens flashlight trying to figure out where he's at. Dude, I had that same <laughs> he's telling that story. 40 yards above the, looking for Crazy. the wake of the ship. Crazy. You, you, you chuckled because you were asking, you're like, hey, I think I know that flashlight. It's the same flashlight I had on my flight. It's the same green elbow-shaped flashlight we all have. I mean, it's one thing that hasn't changed much in naval aviation. It's the gear. It's all the same stuff. 
But as you're coming back, you're on instruments, you're waiting for your turn for the final approach, you know, the last mile of descent where you go from, from 600 feet and then you start to descend down onto the boat itself. And that's when you start picking up the visual cues, the meatball, they call mm-hmm. it, kind of the lineup of, of the <clears throat> runway. But a lot of times you still can't see the ship if there's cloudy or foggy or, or low or rain or snow and all these things. And all these elements are just there and you have no choice. You have no alternative. And the psychological component of knowing that every single time you're gonna sort of duel with that, it's, in, in some ways, it's, it's kind of terrifying. But in other ways, it means that every single, f- there's, there's a challenge in every single flight. <laughs> and I think one of the cool things about being around the ship, and one of the things that makes naval aviation unique, what these guys in the Navy and the Marines that did it, is that every single flight there was this risk, there was this this fight that you were gonna get to duel against this machine, this boat, this thing that's out there that's sort of geared and designed in every way, shape, or form, it's a really bad airport. It's not a, <laughs> It's not designed to be an airport. Uh, it's got this tiny, and the margin of error is minuscule. I think in the Hornet, the margin of error from coming across, they call it the ramp, that's the very first piece of, of steel that you get over the top of the ship to land. If you were eight feet off, you were either gonna miss and go around, or if you're eight feet low, you were gonna hit the ship. So the margin of error is tiny. Uh, hold on a second. <clears throat> what, what happens when you're in a 12-foot sea state? Yeah. Well, when you're in a 12-foot sea state and that thing's moving around, the, the visual sin, uh, indications on the ship, the, this visual thing, we call it the meatball, which is a light system that reflects where you are. So if the light is high above, there's like a green light that goes back and forth and there's a round yellow light in the middle. It's round, it's yellow, so they call it the meatball. It looks like a circle. If that ball is above the green lights, you're high. And if that ball is below the green lights, you're low. And you're kind of flying it around to try to move that white or that yellow ball in between the green lights. That system keeps up with ship's movement up to some degree. I don't remember exactly what it was. The ship will kind of list back and forth, it'll raise up and down. And as long as it's not moving too fast or too much, that light system is accurate. Oh, so you're 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 accommodating the movement of the ship Absolutely. with your aircraft. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And you're moving your throttle, let, you know, forward and backwards, you know, 10-15 times every second to accommodate for that. And the good thing is is that it's it's Good information. It's trustworthy. So if the ball is high, you're high. If the ball is low, you're low. If the ball gets too low, it turns red. You're good. you are dangerously low, and that gives you a very good cue. If the ship starts moving too fast or too much, that system is no longer reliable. It doesn't keep up with the movement of the ship fast enough, so you cannot rely on that. And then your landing signals officers, your LSOs, your people that have radios on the flight deck, they have to start talking to you, and they'll say things like. Ignore the information that you're seeing, <laughs> you're low. And now you're in this challenge of seeing this visual cue that you've relied on hundreds of times, and you have someone saying, ignore that information, I'm telling you, you need to add power, even though that's showing you high. And look, those things don't happen all the time. How can they give you the micro adjustments fast enough in that situation? Uh, the LSOs and look, I, one of the cool things. About or is he like uh, power, 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 break, 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 uh, look left, it, left, left. Is he doing that? Not, not. It's quite as fast as you, but that is what he's. That's what we were saying. So I was an LSO. One of the cool things in my career when I was on the ship is I got to lead an LSO team. So I was a, a, a landing signals officer. So every fifth day on a cruise, 
I just help airplanes land. I sat out there with a team on radios. And usually, usually, if Jocko's coming in and he's low, I can just say, little power. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. Just a little cool, smooth call. And you, oh, okay, I'm behind and you'll add some power. Sometimes I like, power. And you're like, dang. Ooh. And you'll hear it and you'll, and, and that's a little more little, heat. Little heat, little, <laughs> little, little big, a little more of a hitter than you might normally need. There are a few times, and every LSO that's listening to this and every student that's out there in flight school probably knows this. There are times in my career that I've had to scream, power, 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 and barely, barely got these airplanes over the ramp to the point that after they landed, we'd go investigate and we'd see divots on the very edge of the carrier called the round down, divots from the hook smashing the edge of the boat, which means that their, their, their wheels may have missed it by, no joke, two feet, something like that. So what you described doesn't happen very often, but it absolutely does happen. And then other times say, hey, you're, you're lined up a little left. And it'll say, right for lineup, right for lineup. And you're talking to them and the, and the, the tone of your voice and the rate at which you say it hopefully solicits the response. Now, the interesting thing about that is what do you think the mental state is of a pilot who's so low and can't assess that on his own? to respond to your cues. You're typically dealing with guys who are so, they were struggling behind the airplane, so they didn't always necessarily respond to your calls. They didn't detach. And it's, that's the challenge of the night carrier landing, is can you detach from what is, can be by itself, under the best circumstances, a terrifying experience. (laughs) Under, Under the best nights. And when you have engine problems, fuel leaks, Hydraulic issues, low on fuel, no diverts, two in the morning in a snowstorm, you have no choice but to get aboard that ship. And it is that is that is why the carrier landing, especially the night landing, that is the great equalizer in aviation. And hearing Yank talk about it and reading about it, there is there's nothing else in the world like it. There's nothing I've ever done that I can compare that experience to. And you did. You said you did a hundred night carrier landings. Yeah, I'm a I'm sketchiest one, dude. So I, I mean, I have I have landed in what we call zero zero. I've landed where there is zero visibility. Zero visibility. Yep. And what's the other zero? Um, so the two measures is is um, the height of the clouds and the depth which you can see them. So you know, a hundred and a half would be clouds are at a hundred feet. Visibility is a half a mile. So zero zero is the clouds are at zero feet and your visibility is zero feet. So you can kind of picture being in fog. It may be on the ground, it may be at zero feet, but it's thin fog, so you kind of maybe see a mile in front of you, you know, driving a car. And if you've ever been in a car, you're like, dang, mm-hmm. I can't see, I can't see 10 feet in front of me, that's zero, zero. So you landed in zero, zero. Zero, zero. So here's how, here's how that works. And here's how much fun the night zero, zero landing is. You can fly your you instruments. You can't see the meatball? You can't see anything. Zero. Zero. You see nothing. Get some. <laughs> yeah. These are good times. Um, so you've got your instruments, though. And your instruments. Everyone that was thinking they wanted to be a fighter pilot just <laughs> during the Air Force, bro. Yeah. They don't want none of this. If, you, if you're going to fly fighters in the Navy, you need to know what you're getting yourself into. Because you're going to have your night in the barrel. There's not a pilot. There's not a naval aviator in the world that hasn't had that night. Whatever that night is for you. You're going to have that night. Mm-hmm. And I bet you the exact same thing in the teams. Like, you're going to have an experience. You're going to have something that happens to you. You cannot avoid it. It's going to be your night or your day or your experience. You're going to have that. There's no getting around mm-hmm. it. And 
we call everybody in naval aviation calls it the night in the barrel. That's your night, and you know you don't know what's going to happen. It's just your night to deal with whatever you got to deal with. That zero zero landing, your instruments will get you to about maybe a quarter mile at best, maybe a half a mile. So probably the last eight seconds. Once you're inside that last eight seconds, your instruments just aren't, they don't keep up with what's going on fast enough for you to fly off them. You have to transition to a visual landing. You have to. And the only way for that to work when you can't see is for you to turn on your taxi light, which is this giant, really high-powered light in your nose gear. And the LSO, and this is a call you want to have your stomach drop. When you're out in the stack, with nothing else to do but thinking about your landing. And you hear all these and he calls. Says, he says, he comes over the radio, 99, which means every, when you say 99, that's a call for everybody. 99 taxi lights on. Ooh. Now, every pilot in the sack is like, oh, God, it's so bad that I, I now know that at the end of this landing, I will not be able to see the, the carrier. And the LSO is going to have to talk me down. And you talk about trust and relationships and putting your life in somebody else's hand, you're gonna fly this machine doing 140 knots, this 35,000 pound machine, to a half a mile from the carrier, and you'll never see the ship until you hit it, and the guy on the ground is gonna talk you through the last eight seconds of that. And he's only gonna do it through his eyeballs, literally through his eyeballs, and the faint, through the fog, that faint little glow of the white light coming from your, your nose gear. And that is a, I'm recalling that as we speak. That is a that's a life changing event right there. I mean, that's a that's a no joke experience. So so he's giving you the same things. He's eyeball, I, eyeball. He's eyeball calibrated. Who the hell trains this guy? Well, how, how does he know he, to do this? Yeah. Well, LS, the LSO qualification at the Navy um, is typically reserved for the best guys in the squadron. Typically, not always, but it's a it's a it's a very um, highly thought of quality. It's, it's a it's a well respected qualification that I'm going to tell you, Jocko. We're going on cruise. You've demonstrated as a young guy, as a nugget. You, you're good around the ship. You're reliable. I'm going to task you with learning to be an LSO. I'm going to put my pilot's lives in your your hands. I would do that as a squadron commander. I'm going to send you to school to be an LSO. You'll go LSO training, and then you'll go through kind of an apprenticeship where you sit and watch other LSOs. And after about three or four months of that, I'm going to give you the radio. And on a perfectly clear, gorgeous blue day, I'm going to let you start to see what it looks like. And you know, you're know, you doing it hundreds of times a day, every five days, cruise after cruise after cruise, and eventually you build this capability through your own experience to be able to do that. Do they ever have to call in like the, the cooler? Let that they're like, hey man, it's zero zero. Go get the Ice Man over there or whatever. Absolutely, bring him up here, dude. That's no joke. We we call him the CAG LSO. So on the ship, the air group is known as the CAG. So that's mm. you know the, the ship is the ship, and they've got all their people. But then the air wing is all the planes. There are two guys that are the two senior landing signals officers on the ship. Ninety percent of the time, all they're doing is training us and letting us run the show. Well, when it's zero zero. The cooler is the CAG LSO, and he's going to be supported or backed up by the team lead. And so that guy on those nights, he's going to be the primary controlling LSO. He's going to be the one doing the talking, and his backup is going to be the team leader of that LSO teams. There's five team leads, you know, five teams, one for each day. You rotate every five days. Those two guys, the CAG LSO, the cooler, and the team lead are going to recover every airplane on the ship when it's, when it's required. 
Are you answering? So you're coming in zero zero, and I tell you power. What do you say, Roger? No, nope. you don't. Say you anything. don't talk at all. You, you just do anything. what he says. And so, and I can tell by watching your aircraft instantly. You can also hear it. You can. Okay, so you're a quarter mile away. You're seven, eight seconds from landing. When I say power, or, or when I say power, and you add power, your your motors are going to change. You're going to hear that. You're going to hear the tone of that. And you're going to. He did it, and you can hear the duration. And so if I say power and you, you add it and it's not enough, I'm gonna immediately say it again before I even watch you settle because I know you didn't do it long enough. And I'm gonna say power, power, and that means you're gonna go longer. And if you go too long and I hear you really run the engines, I'm gonna say easy with it. I'm gonna ask you and you're gonna bring power off. And so I'm gonna talk I'm gonna watch Are these and uniform pro words used by all? Every single word in the LSO manual is exactly the same. People, we only use one word. For power, we only one word for takeoff power. One word to turn right, one word to turn left, uh, and they're predetermined. They all know. Everybody else uses the exact same. Did you terminology. say easy, buddy? What is it? Easy, easy with it. Easy, and that's the that's the terminology in the book. Easy yep. with it means back off power a little bit. That's right. If you're gonna have someone go right, you say right for lineup. If you're gonna have someone go to the left, you say come left. That way, if you said come left, come right, you might get a little come. Uh, not sure. Right for lineup, left for lineup. You might. So there's a different version of going right. And then Riz going left. Every pilot in the world and every LSO knows in the world, he's going to go left, come left. If you want him to go right, right for lineup. And as I start to hear the ruh, I know he's telling me right for lineup because I don't have to really decipher that call. And if I hear the E in the easy with it, I'm coming off the power a little bit. And so there are, you know, the terms are totally predefined. Everybody knows what they are and we rely on those. And so the zero zero recovery doesn't happen all that often, but it happens. You can't see the ship until you hit it. Yeah. A zero zero landing, you may get lucky that a half a second before you feel the shutter of hitting the flight deck, you might catch something out of the corner of your eye. And meanwhile, at that moment, you go prepare to go full. You actually go full throttle when you hit the deck, right? When you feel your, your flight, when you hear your tires hit the, the flight deck, you go full power. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> That way, if you miss, you're taking off and you're not just falling into the drain. That's right. That's exactly right. If you miss, <laughs> just, you just go back sure around. Everybody knows that. Yeah. And you know that that LSO piece of flying around the ship is also a skill that it's really hard to get people to appreciate how how good you have to be. How much confidence as an LSO you have to be to say, "I got this." I I, I would a thousand times over like prefer to be the guy that's the pilot and not be the guy that's. Dude. You know, it's one of those horrible situations yeah. where you're not actually in danger, but you've got someone that's relying on you to get it right. Yeah. You'd be a good LSO because you also know the power, you talk about it all the time, of just how you communicate. The LSOs that panic when you're, Oof. when I look up and I see your jet in a really bad spot, a really bad spot, and if I panic in my communication to you, and that doesn't mean I won't be stern, and very specific, power. But if I panic and I have a high pitch, kind of a shrill to how I'm communicating, mm-hmm. you're gonna react that way. So the best LSOs were the guys that would look at the worst situation in the most dire circumstances and the worst weather with a pilot that he knows has one chance to get aboard, one chance. And he has the coolest, calmest, most chill voice in the world. Two or two, you're a little low, just a little power. You're on glide slope. And that can put a pilot at ease to go, oh, holy cow, I, I, 
I, I can do this. I can get aboard now. Whereas before he's thinking, I can't see the ship. I got this engine problem. I got all these things and creates a situation in his mind that he knows he can't get aboard. And LSO can talk him out of that mindset and get him on the flight deck. So when, when uh, Dan was talking about the guy that missed 12 times in a row, and I think, wasn't it Dan that actually went down there and said, oh, let me get on the radio. Let me talk this guy on. And that's the same thing he says. Hey, bud, we're gonna get it done. We're gonna get it done right this time. Yep. <laughs> and and if it's from the right person at the right time in the right way, it makes all the difference. And that was that guy's night in the barrel. I mean, that's a lot. That's not common. The, the reason you don't get another shot is because you're out of fuel. Yeah. Don't you have a refueler up there? Yeah. Usually you do. There are emergencies that your jet will not take gas. You've got emergencies that you've got a hydraulic problem that even if you had all the fuel in the world, eventually your hydraulic fluid will run out and you can't fly the airplane. So in most, these are not common cases, but there are cases that this happens. What do you do if you are out of hydraulic fuel, you missed your landing, what's the protocol to eject now? What do you do? Do you go to a certain spot? Do you, they spin up, yeah, yeah. they get the helicopters ready? They, that, that's exactly right. So there's two options. You got a barricade option, but if it's not a controllable situation, I mean, the saying is you pull alongside the ship and eject. So what you do is you try to fly a parallel straight right across, uh, you know, aboard the ship, you know, a mile of beam, the helicopter's out there spinning. There's always a helicopter flying while you're coming aboard, uh, at least during the day. And I've never, I've never been on a cruise where we had to intentionally do that. I've been on cruises where we started briefing that option as an LSO, like, okay, here's what we're going to do. This is what our plan is going to be. You're starting to coordinate with the ship's emergency recovery team on this is what we're going to do if indeed we don't, you know, get this guy aboard for whatever reason. Life of the ship is no joke. And, yeah. and the Navy makes it look easy because they're doing it hundreds of times a day, every single day. And 99 times out of 100 or 999 out of 1,000, these dire situations, they pull it off. And the only ones we ever hear about are the ones that it rarely, but these type of things happen all the time. These dangerous situations are happening right now. There's there's someone in the someone in the barrel once a day on the on a carrier deployment once no. a week. Yeah, once a day is no. I, I'd say more often than not, certainly when weather's good. I mean, it's it's smooth. I mean, you're putting 120 aboard and you know to launch and recovery in a day, and most days just go by. But if you've got, you know, if you did the math that we've got multiple carriers deployed at sea all the time and you're doing multiple flight ups all the time, once a week out there somewhere in, in the blue ocean, there's a kid up there who's struggling. It might not be 12, you know, but he's struggling and he's having a hard time and you're watching him have a hard time and you're, you're trying to talk him down. Did you ever have a hard time? Did you ever get shook to the point where you came back and like had to decompress and say, you know what? This, I had a I had a buddy in this in the teams, and he did a he did a he was doing some, we'll just say maritime operations, Jack. off the coast of Korea for an exercise, and it was just freezing cold and claustrophobic in the whole nine yards, and and he was telling me you know he's in this evolution, and he's thinking to himself. I don't even know if I actually ever want to do this again. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, think about that. So, when, like, when that kid, and, 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 you know, the kid that Dan talks about that does 12, 12 tries to make it, and the next day they put him right back up there, and he did fine. Mm -hmm. Did you ever get shook, as they say in modern terminology? I, I struggled in the beginning before I would go launch. 
Um, I had a real problem in the very beginning when I got assigned to a carrier squadron and I, I kind of had to come to grips that this is going to be my day-to-day life. <laughs> um, I think I might even mention it too. I think I mentioned the name Gunny Pilgrim being just this awesome gunnery sergeant that taught me everything as a lieutenant. Uh, he and I were pretty tight and I'd say for the first, probably the first month of my carrier career where I'm doing sustained cyclic carrier operations, if I was... I would walk up on the flight deck, I would pre-flight my jet, and I would throw up over the side of the ship. Just from nerves and anxiety and just like, man, just being stressed. And I would just I would just be physically ill. And, you know, I didn't tell anybody about it, and he knew. And so if he ever managed to find this guy, he'll tell you those stories. And it was just something I just, I just had to learn to deal with. But, you know, you man up. I don't mean it like the phrase man up. We call getting into an airplane manning up. Like you climb up the ladder to man up your jet. We manned up the jets and you'd go and you'd come back. And then at the end, you'd look back and be like, that was awesome. And then when it's time to go to again, you'd, you'd get nauseous. And that subsided. I did have a couple of landings and he described it really well. I had a couple of landings that were so kind of terrifying that I couldn't move. I couldn't control my legs. So my legs would, they would shake so, so fast. And so your feet would, would, from the adrenaline that it'd be hard to steer the airplane. And a couple of times I had to stop the airplane and the flight deck crew kind of understands this. Like when you just stop to kind of look at you and you just, you kind of give them like, give me a second. And so I, I had several times. This is times after you, you hooked onto the. You hook, you come to a stop, you kind of turn off and that adrenaline wash kind of goes out. So maybe about a minute after that, your whole body will convulse like your legs and you steer everything with your legs. So you're putting a lot of pressure on your feet and your toes and you maneuver the airplane with your feet and your legs are shaking so hard that you, you literally can't steer and they're, they're, your margin for like, they, they take it to the side of the ship like three feet away from the edge of the ship. So you're looking over the water and you're just kinda, so I've had several landings where after I landed, I needed to stop for a second and just like, hey dude, just give me a second, I would just stop the airplane. And usually they would look at you and go, take catch your breath. Um, I never got out of the airplane and said I don't wanna do that anymore. Even on, and I had some pretty rough nights. <laughs> And I think there was just this piece of this idea that it's like <laughs> you, you once said something a long time ago that I just laughed at. I'm like, that's not me. And you you said, I like the taste of blood. You like, and I, I kind of took it like you like fighting. Not that you want to, I don't mean it like you like to fight other people, but that feeling that you get, you like that feeling. Well, I told you, I'm like, I don't like the taste of blood. Flying a fighter around the ship with all the things that made me think about not wanting to do it, all the danger, all the emergencies, all, I loved it. I freaking loved every second of it, even the things that I hated. And there were things I hated about it. I loved it. And I loved doing it. I, and, and I hated it at the same time, but not once did I ever say, I don't want to keep doing that. How my as a crew went on later on, but being around the ship, being on the ship, doing ship things as much as I hated it. My my squadron would tell you, Dave did not like flying around the ship. I hated it. But man, I freaking loved it. So that was kind of my personal experience. Everybody's different. I never really quite normalized to it. I always just felt like, man, this sucks. But there was something about it that never got old and never got tired for me. And I I I loved doing it. Yeah, and it's weird because that idea of I like the taste of blood. It's one of those things where when I haven't tasted blood in a while, 
I don't really, I don't notice. I'm not sitting there thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, something will happen. Something will 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 happen. You know, it could be any number of things. It could be it could be something as simple. Not not usually. Jujitsu to me isn't isn't this type of thing. Maybe occasionally there'll be something will happen on the mats, but normally that's not it. I just enjoy jujitsu too much, but something will happen. Some some situation will unfold and I'll I'll go into like war mode. And when I go to war mode, I, I just feel so good. And when I get there, I'm like, oh yeah. And, and it makes me, you know, so, sometimes I, I, I when I get there, it, it makes me just look around and I just think, I wasn't really, I wasn't really supposed to be doing anything else. You know, I wasn't really supposed to be doing anything else. I was supposed to be doing that, that thing, because it it makes me feel so, so good to, to, to be in that mode, to feel that focus, to have, like for me, and this is just so weird for me because you know, I like to, uh, 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 you know, we're, we're, we're building relationships, we're building teams, we're working together. For me, when I have an opponent, not, not just an opponent, it has to be stronger than that. When I have somebody or some entity that, that, is, that, is, that is antagonistic to me and my family, my friends, my team, I feel something that is the best feeling to me. And, and, it, and it doesn't happen that much anymore. I mean, it just doesn't. I mean, that's just the way it is. But like even, you know, even when I was a platoon commander and something would happen, some, some other, you know, whether it, was, whether it was the enemy, whether it was some part of some organization, you know, some person that had some, did, did something that was, I don't, I don't want to throw this word out there because it just it just sets off a whole bunch of you know what could it be but it, you know if there's a betrayal scenario where someone betrays me and they want to go to war with me that delivers me you know that's when I I I love the taste of blood and I and I can feel it and you know like I said it's it's uh, you know, it's an old man talking now, and just don't get those situations very often. But it's good. It's a good. It's a good feeling. Yeah, it happens from time to time. Well, it's it's you and I are two old men, at least for this game at this point. But if I were to look back, and I spent a lot of my life dreaming of being a fighter pilot. A lot of my life was spent dreaming about doing the things that I got to do. If you were to ask me at any point during my time at sea flying what I was doing that I could have done anything anywhere for any amount of money, there's not one single thing in the world I would have done. On my worst night, on my scariest whatever, not one other thing. And when you said what you said, that that I think described that feeling is this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And every night, the thing that you were fighting, you know, in some sense was yourself, but it was that environment that is sort of designed to kill you. It's dark. It's 
pitch black at night and it's a steel unforgiving ship with a tiny little area that's 42 feet wide and 130 and everything about that on paper is designed to kill you and the only way you're going to outmaneuver that is is what you and your machine do and there was a piece of that fight which i think is what it was is that the satisfaction of doing that on the best days or the worst days is really hard to, to recreate and replicate and feel in other ways. That satisfaction of, I did something I was supposed to be doing and if I didn't do it well enough, it was gonna get me hurt or killed or the people around me hurt or killed. And I haven't experienced a lot of other things like that, but it's rare to be in a, in a, in a, in a work environment where you get that so regularly. And that's every single landing. If you take your eye off the ball, no pun intended, on the most clear, perfect blue sky day, the, you'll kill yourself. You'll get yourself killed. And you'll probably hurt a lot of people along the way. Uh, and, and there was a challenge there that, that, I, that I, I never got tired of, which was, for me, doing what you described as, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Can you imagine the screening process that, it's the de facto screening process that we can launch. I mean, how many guys are landing on a carrier today, right? And that happens all the time. And this screening process and the training process is so good that these guys can pull this off over and over again around the world in every sea state, day, night, clouds, no clouds, fog, no fog. That's what, that's what, that's what we do. Yeah, I mean, and we make a, it look routine. It's just yeah. insane. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, a ship's doing well over a hundred a day every single day and uh yeah dude what the navy is doing um it's it's unreal man it's awesome so with that with that does that then is this where okay look the the inside the navy inside the navy where you cannot surrender because <laughs> you cannot give up the ship because otherwise you all die inside the navy you have this, this of all the people that are in the Navy, of all the people that are in the Marine Corps, a little bit different because it's just a different, it's a different uh, uh, subset, right? Yep. But the subset of Marine Corps aviators, fighter jet pilots, the Navy, you're, you're, it's, it's more prevalent in the Navy. L let's face it, the delta between a surface warfare officer in the Navy and a Navy fighter pilot, that delta is bigger than the delta between a Marine Corps infantry officer and a Marine Corps fighter pilot. Unless we wanna go back to World War II and you wanna see some just insane, incredible, just, they're, 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 I mean the danger of being on a Navy ship in World War II was yep. totally insane as well. Totally. So, so the delta, the screening process, where you get to is you end up with a certain type of person. So in the Navy, when you're gonna go for the SEAL teams, you're a certain, there's a certain element that's there. And for lack of a better word, uh, and I think I'm using it because Dan talked about it, there's a, there's a rebellious nature, right? There's someone that's going, hey look, I don't care. Look, you don't volunteer to go land on that freaking postage stamp if you hold life to be the most precious thing. There's something else there, right? There's some, you don't do that. You just don't do that. And that's what I like about this 
Top Gun mentality, and I'll call it the Top Gun mentality. I'll call it the 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 idea that I talked about earlier. This extreme ownership mentality of like, hey, I'm gonna go and make this happen, and when it goes wrong, I'm gonna figure it out and I'm gonna fix it. There is a certain breed of human that tend in that direction, and you can. Because otherwise, I mean, let's face it, you talking about landing on a carrier at night, there is a massive swath of human beings that there's no way in hell they ever want to do what you just talked about. Echo, what is your, are you fired up to go do a carrier landing right now? No, not at this time, no, thank you. Not at zero, what about, zero. What about zero, zero? At, no, What about nighttime? No. The whole what, barrel what, thing. what about day after day after day after day after night after night after night after night, right? Yeah. So we're talking about a, a different, you know, a different kind of human with a different mentality. Mm-hmm. And what we've done is set up this process that finds those humans and gets them to that point where they do that for 25 years. For 25 years, that's how we're doing this. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So, I got, I had a couple more things I wanted to ask you. Flexible four, is that what it's called? The flexible four, what's the? What's the fluid four. The fluid four. <laughs> yeah, that's what it meant. What, we're, we're in a formation, we work together, it sounded like it was a lot more regimented than it was fluid. Yeah, fluid four is not a fluid formation. Do, does anyone use it anymore? Yeah, we use it to kind of like navigate to and from the space. Other than that, it's not happening. It's not a tactical thing at all. You you do it just to keep people close together. So you hey, we're gonna go from point A to point B, and I don't want to mess around. Just kind of get close to me. We're gonna fluid four out there. Um, I, I sent you a text. I said loose deuce. I said loose deuce. It equals. Uh, Cover and move plus decentralized command over, and you're like, Roger, makes sense. Yeah, yes. yeah that's it. Exactly. You right. got it. Yep. Because in a loose goose formation, or sorry, loose deuce formation, either one of us can take lead. We can, we can, we can take lead and we can make things happen on our own, and yet we have to cover for each other. Yeah. And if we don't work together, we're going to die. That's right. That's exactly right. I can and I can direct you to do something that I need you to do, and when you don't comply, I know that it's because you can't. Uh, and so there's this uh, relationship piece. There's all those components that you just talked about are inside there, and that's how you and I are going to work together to eventually isolate the bad guy, and one of us is going to kill him. And I don't really care who does it, as long as one of us does it. And if that means I got to stay engaged the whole time that you get the kill, it's good by me because we're good and we move on. <clears throat> These guys figured that out, right? These guys figured it out. These guys said, the other way doesn't work. This way works better. This is, again, you have to have some element of rebel mentality in your brain in order to say, you know what? It's same thing with same thing with uh, uh, jujitsu, right? You Someone's got to say, listen, I don't really believe that if you do this kata to me, that it's going to work. Somebody's got to say that in the teams. The, you know, the biggest, this, this happened to us in the teams. We were, we were using, we'd use real ammunition, we'd shoot at paper targets, and you win every single time, and you, 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 know, you go through the house, and every, every target is dead, and they didn't maneuver you, they didn't fire, they didn't fire on you, and they don't maneuver. 
So it becomes so easy. When we brought in laser tag, we brought in paintball and sim munition and, and these things that allowed us to fight each other, even then, somebody had to have the mentality, number one, to say, you know what? First of all, we should try these tactics on each other because we've been being told over and over again. I got told that for my first 10 years in the teams, or eight years in the teams. Hey, this is what works. You know what you say? Roger that, roger that, roger that. To say, you know what? We need to check this. We need to test it. You know what? There was people that when paintball, when paintball revealed the shortfalls of our tactics, there was people that said, yeah, but. Yeah, but you know, it's, it's only paint, so it's, oh yeah, but it's not a real weapon. Yeah, but the, the, there's a different in the penetration. There's all kinds of yeah, buts. The, the rebels said, yeah, you're saying yeah, but guess what? Somebody just pointed a paintball gun down the hallway and, and you know, 13 out of 16 of us got hit with paintball. That doesn't seem good. And there was people that were saying, yeah, but. Yeah, but it's not an AK-47. AK-47 only holds 30 rounds. A paintball gun has a hopper with 100 rounds. That's not realistic. Okay, what if they had a freaking... Uh, totally. Uh, any kind of machine gun. So you have to employ this rebel mentality. And that's why you get, you know, that's why you get these crazy Top Gun stories. That's why they're stealing a trailer to set up shop. The SEAL teams has traced its whole history back to that kind of rebel behavior. Yeah. There is a... There, and that's what shocked me. It didn't shock me, but that's what was, was so amazing. When Dan was like, hey, he's the OIC, and he says, we are gonna be the most professional humans that these pilots have ever talked to. We're gonna brief these things. We're gonna murder board each other. We're gonna be in the perfect uniform. They're talking about uniforms. This attitude of we're gonna be rebellious, we're gonna, we're gonna make sure things work, and at the same time, we're gonna be we're gonna be above board, across the board, in everything else, so that when we step out and say, hey, this is wrong, people will actually listen. That is a rare thing. It's a rare thing to, to know that you have to hold the line, toe the line, be above board, across the board, and then at the same time know that when something's not quite right, you've gotta be a rebel at heart. Top Gun mentality. Yeah, man. It's so legit. And and to have that legacy persist and to be able to cultivate it in a way that has evolved and changed a whole bunch. We're not dealing with the same problems that, that, that the, the original bros are dealing with back in the late 60s. We're not losing in Vietnam. We're not dealing. But we actually have to do the same thing. And what what that mentality now is fighting against the complacency that comes with the things that we've been able to do so well for so long and have people say, hey, listen, I know this has worked for a long time and I know this has been the best way to do it, but it's not gonna keep working like this because the people we're fighting against are gonna figure this out. They're gonna build a new machine. They're gonna build some countermeasure. They're gonna do something that keeps us from working and we act, have to be every bit as creative and now tell the, or, or the entire institution what we're doing won't work anymore and figure out a way to get the institution this giant behemoth institution to listen to you. And none of that happens ever unless you as a leader, as a team member, stay humble. 
if you don't stay humble, I, I, I can't even imagine. Like, like, like I know what the you know when you're going into the SEAL training and it's the most elite training, and you you know the the video, the recruiting video that I watched. The title of the video was "Be Someone Special," right? That's the title of the video to try and get you to go in there. So you're getting told you're special the whole time. Top Gun's got to be ten times worse. On top of that, you add the freaking you know Maverick and Viper totally. and Iceman. I mean, we're talking. You're just this is an this is an ego booster rocket, and to to have that ego booster rocket, and yet you know throw out the sea anchor to keep you grounded, to keep you down to earth, to keep you humble. That is the last part of this Top Gun mentality that's allowed us, uh, you know, allowed the allies of America, our, our air forces around the world, to be the best and continue to be the best. And you have to have all those elements. And what's awesome is, if you have these elements, these elements do not only apply to fighter, flying aircraft. They, they apply to being in a SEAL platoon. They apply to being in an infantry company. They apply to being on the jiu-jitsu mats. They apply to every, to be, to be in, a, in a part of a family, part of a team, part of anything. These aspects will make you win in the end. Two and a half hours. Dave, did I miss anything? <laughs> no, man, that was awesome. There's probably a bunch of other things that you could get me talking about. Um, the mentality that you talked about at the end, I think for me is the most important thing. F- for sure. Yeah, and that's and to, to finish with that and, and to have that be the thing that persists in the legacy of Top Gun and have it have nothing to do with Hollywood or any of those things, but the legacy of people who took that burden of responsibility of I'm responsible for people's lives who are going to go out and lead junior pilots out into combat and turn that into something that becomes an organization that's lasted for decades. I mean, what Yank was able to do in the face of, of more organizational resistance than I've ever faced. I didn't face a big Navy or big Marine Corps telling me no all the time. I didn't grow up in that, that Marine Corps. Um, to be, a, and I said this last time, but to be a small link in that long chain, um, I had a harder time reading this book personally because it was so easy con- to connect. I was so inside. Not, I read this book and understood so much of it that a hard time seeing it. You and I actually even talked about it a little bit of, hey, what? Like I was missing components of that because I was on the inside. Talking about it with him last week and then coming back here again on it today has helped me detach even more to see even what I did at Top Gun while I was there that didn't I didn't understand quite that level because I was inside of it and the story is incredible but it's it's the persistence of that mentality that is how you win everywhere connected back to the attribute that has been my biggest challenge and by far the thing that has mattered the most in my life which is humility to learn at a place at Top Gun where people are telling you that you're the Best of the best. I mean, that is the phrase that gets thrown out all the time. The best of the best. Uh, you know, there's a difference between humility and showmanship. There's plenty of showmanship up there. You used to talk about it with Conor McGregor all the time. Mm-hmm. But there is so much humility inside that organization because of the, the burden and the responsibility that they feel 
that it's cool to come full circle from the beginning of this conversation was I learned more about humility at Top Gun than anywhere else because it was the thing that I was required the most for me to actually be successful there. And uh, Yank and the and the original bros, they deserve a lot of credit for creating that. No doubt, and it's it's also amazing that when you trace back the history of the SEAL teams and the way they were formed and the way they learned and the the, the attitude, it's the same. It's the same traits. It's the same traits that we talk about all the time. This is what it takes to win. And with that, Echo Charles. Yes. Uh, do you have any suggestions on how we can employ the Top Gun mentality in our own lives? Yeah, sure. But first, I have a question for first. Good Deal Dave. So back to the, because it's kind of confused, back to the dogfighting situation of scenario one. Okay. Maybe to scenario one. The one where. <clears throat> Dang, you're going way back. Yeah, because let's face it, that wasn't as cut and dry straightforward as far as understanding it goes it was, it was, it was, it was just it was hard to track yeah a little bit right so okay so you're trying to close the distance as the the guy uh, on defender. offense no defensive oh, yes, guy okay, wants okay, to yep, close the distance yep, you got it that's right, right. um so yeah because it's confusing because usually like in jujitsu or fighting the offender wants to close. If you're a jujitsu fighter, you want to close the dis- distance yes. as the, you know. Yes. And then the, that outside green zone is not available in the scenario, but it is still available in the whole kind of scope of, of fighting. Uh, okay. You said that you don't do like a, like a, like a juke or, or like a feint or anything like that. Uh, you know, go one way and then break right or whatever. Is there any version of a feint in dogfighting at all? Well, wouldn't it be you do a break and then you do a ditch? And then you do another break and then you do another ditch? No, I, I would not equate. I, I, I did not explain it well enough to have it in your in your mind, see it clearly enough. But the break and the ditch are two exclusive right. things. Yeah. And I, the simplest way to answer that is is no. Because if you're fighting against opponent an opponent who recognizes that that's a feint, what a feint would do if you move to one direction to set up a move in another direction is that you're giving him the separation that he wants to to attack you. Gotcha. And part of what might be confusing about this is that you know we started with this one against one, which is a very canned setup that we're starting at a mile or whatever that might be. You know that that six thousand feet. Yeah. It hasn't accounted for all the things that have gotten to that point, but that mile is actually the optimal separation for an attacker to get. So if you were in, in whatever the optimal position between you and somebody else in jiu-jitsu for you to be successful as the person in the offensive advantage, that's a mile. So if you can kind of equate, if you were to just show me exactly how you'd want to position yourself against someone else, you know, you've taken his back, you've kind of started to set up the rear naked or whatever that might be, whatever that, that separation is, that's not the same separation as if someone in the mount pulled you and kind of grabbed you and pulled you close to him so you couldn't strike them. Right. So that that start of you being behind him is is that start of that position. And if I kind of fainted or kind of hinted at I was going to move in one direction to stop the choke and I opened up my neck to do right. it, yep. the, guy, the guy you're fighting is going to laugh at that feint because all you did was open up your neck. Yeah. And he's good enough and fast enough to take advantage of that. That he, what you're doing is giving him more positional advantage than you already have. Yeah, totally understand now. Because 
I think it's natural when we're not fighter pilots to uh, to think, oh yeah, the defender, right? The guy who's who's in front or whatever. We think of that as like, why doesn't he just get away, right? Or why doesn't he, you know, why don't you just do a move here and fake him out and get away? But it's not that. It's like you, the 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 offender, the offensive guy is just kind of trying to keep you at a certain range right attack range like that's essentially his goal it's not to like follow you everywhere you know like a high-speed car chase or something it's like to keep you in that range the whole time so if you compare it to jujitsu right you know how like we have situational training which that's essentially what it is right situational training so if you start on my back Mm -hmm. jocko Mm -hmm. i'm the defender Mm -hmm. it's essentially the same thing i'm the defender and you hold me I hold you tight. Like I'm holding your hands and mm-hmm. stuff. Like I got one hand here, yep. one hand here. But yep. I'm holding you tight. You can't like maneuver at all. I'm so tight. Everything is just so tight. You want to get me in a range that essentially you can choke me, right? So, or actually a better one is side control. You know I, how? I think I have it. I think I have it. I think I, I think I figured out what's going on here. You've heard me say in jujitsu that if I'm going to fake a move, if I'm going to feint a move, yeah. I actually have to feint the move enough that you have to react to it, yeah. right? I can't, just, I can't just fake the sweep and expect you to react because if, you, if I fake the sweep and you know it's a fake sweep, you just pass my guard or you, you, you take advantage of my fake or you don't yeah. fall for it at all. I think because of the because of the reaction of an aircraft, if you're going to fake enough that I'm gonna actually have to fall for your fake, for you to recover back is you can't do it quickly enough and I am going to be able to take advantage of it. So you can't, it's, it's not possible to throw a sp- a fake that's committed and like when you commit the, the 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 hands down the best thing you can do is commit to that move and that is the hardest thing for me to track is that an accurate assessment yes Dave? yeah and it, the, that took me so long to figure out it took me right. this entire conversation to figure out that yeah so like in jiu-jitsu they're not really even feints they're essentially just chaining moves together i'm going to yes. do this move and when he reacts to this move that i'm doing not a fake one a real one when Which he that, reacts then the i can do you this. have to yeah. do a real move yeah yeah and, so, and let's face it if you do a real move in jiu-jitsu and the person doesn't react to it, it well then you yeah, just get the success, move yeah. so that's what they're saying here is you're doing the move and if the person doesn't react to it cool you win if they do react to it, you go to the next move in the chain, right. just like Stay you would in jujitsu. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you ever been against someone where you get side mount on them and they hold you really, really, really yes, tight? Yes. Like just to, uh, new guys, I think do it out of panic. But mm-hmm. if you get a strategic guy, like some of the Gracies will do this, mm-hmm. where they'll hold you because if you're too tight, Chester, you can't do any yeah, submissions. You, don't, you, don't you need a little bit of space, yep. you know. So it's essentially that. Right, where the defender, he's holding you tight. That's what he wants. He wants to hold you tight. You don't start off tight, but that's that's how he can kind of defeat your attacks because you're out of range of attack, right? Mm-hmm. So it, I think it's just a misconception where outsiders, people who are not pilots or whatever, they look at Top Gun and they're like, yeah, you just shoot the guy. That's how you win, you know, kind of thing. But it's, no, you got to keep him in that range. And then, yeah, if you can 
find the, the correct jujitsu scenario that's that's similar, then it becomes easier to understand. Because I yeah. wasn't understanding at all. I was like, bro, <laughs> that doesn't even like why doesn't this guy? Just, yeah, but then yeah, after a while, I think I got it. I think I'm ready. Let's go up to Top Gun. Yes, ready sir. for Top Gun? Let's yeah, do I this. Think so. I think so. Check. Speaking of Top Gun, we do want to be capable. As capable as we can. You know, we don't all have 20, 30 vision. Wait, which one is the good vision? 20, 30 or 30, 20? 25. Yeah. 25. That's the dope one. So 25 would be like superhuman. So second number is the low number. So 20, 20 means at 20 feet, the object appears like it's 20 feet away. That's normal. 20, 30 means at 20 feet, the object appears like it's 30 30 feet away. Fighter pilots, some fighter pilots out there, they got 20, 10 vision. They see it as if they're 10 feet closer. That's how good their eyes are. Yeah. My, my daughter, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly uh, they brought other, you know, they, when she was doing the eye, this is my oldest daughter, when they doing the eye test, the doctor was, or the whatever the practitioner was. Hey, everyone come in here and look at this, because she was just really good. I, I, she said 25. That seems unrealistic to me. But she also kind of gave like a 25, and then she was like, 25, 2010. So maybe it's just 2010. But yeah, it's so pretty. She can uh, be a pilot, maybe. My, my, my dad also had really insane vision. Really oh. insane, really good vision. Mine was always just, you know, solid. Right. Say. Good. What, what did you, was yours so I was re- better than 2020? Yeah, 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 yeah. So like I was, I would read the 2015 line kind of no factor, and I was picking off like a couple off the 2010. Um, which is not not common. I mean, not a lot of. I was lucky enough to have a gift of really good vision. Yeah, I mean, oh. just a ma- How stoked were you when you're like <laughs> they're like, oh yeah, you're gonna take your vision because you want to be a fighter pilot. Oh, by the way, this is one of the most important factors. Oh, by the way, you happen to have just naturally one in a hundred thousand humans have this kind of vision. Can you like not become a fight, fighter pilot if your vision is like a you know? A, used to be like that. Like I said, now like they that figure anymore. out like Jock can go get LASIK and like as long as he passes physical, he's good. Then right. there's there's technology and science out there that improves your vision. You don't have to be born with it anymore. Did you notice that on the muster video, the one that got the muster that got canceled, Orlando, Orlando, right? Yes. The one that got canceled in the video. I put little attributes to each of the team members, and yours was the eye test. It was real quick. But if you oh, look, you can okay. notice yeah, yeah. that's why. I saw that. <laughs> Hell yeah, you did. Picked it off. Check that 2010 out. 2010 line. Anyway, capability, right? All right, you want to be capable, you want to stay capable. Jocko Fuel will help you do that. Factually, mm-hmm. here's the thing. All right, look. Do you have a perfect diet? Do you have a per- perfect diet? No, I do not. I don't, have a perfect, you don't, I don't have a perfect diet either. So, Jocko Fuel, food, drink, Supplementation, boom, all in one. So, what do we got? Joint warfare, super krill oil for your joints. When they go out, and they after will. you said boom, I was like, uh oh, he's trapped. I don't know. I don't even think Echo knows where he's going. But then you just you just maneuvered right out. No, of that. that was like <laughs> you, you, you did a little deck transition and you yeah, rolled right out, and hard, I was pretty impressed. Like, a, what is that? A hard break deck scenario? Transition. Deck transition. Deck transition was awesome, man. <laughs> So well, that's what listening. happened right there, yeah. right? Uh, there you go. Nonetheless, I'm just trying to explain what we got here. Mm-hmm. You know, what we're taking, what I'm taking, you know. Anyway. What, look, let's just be straight up. What do you take every day? 
uh, super krill oil. I ran out of joint where for just text. I, I know, I know, you know, and I'm, so I'm quarantine 2020 and that's my excuse. But nonetheless, you know, I got a, a response. So, that means Brian, I, so, I, I, so is he FedExing? I, you know, I don't go over those details. Okay. You know? he's, so he's well, the, a the, good, 100%, the so. good thing is we can, we will now get another, uh, what, what is that? Scientific assessment of yeah. when you go off joint warfare yeah. and you start getting aches and pains, Yeah, which is what happens. <laughs> yeah. So All right. So you take joint warfare. Super krill super oil. Krill. That's the combo. That's the that's joint the combo maintenance for sure. antioxidant combo right there. What do you? T- I take three joint warfare in the morning, three joint warfare at night, three super krill in the morning, three super krill at night every day. Yeah. I take basically half. I do that, but not night and day. Oh, you just do it one, one time? One hit, three and three. Uh, Easy money. Discipline every single day. Every put it this way: every day that I work out, deplane all day. D- with like a electrolyte kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. I used to take this pre-workout with caffeine. Don't even take it anymore. Mm-hmm. Discipline. Uh, so the powder discipline. Yes, sir. What flavor? Um, which are uh, all of them? Which all are, of them. All interchangeable to me because I Dave just <laughs> looked at you like you were evil. <laughs> Well, the what after you are, you're on the Jocko Palmer, right? With ice, ice. So with ice, ice. Yeah. No. crushed ice, crushed ice is ridiculous. Well, tro- so good. Tropic Thunder, you know, is my go-to with the cans. Hundred percent, I drink cans every day. Mm-hmm. But the Discipline Powder, hundred percent, every day. every day that I work out, which is five, sometimes six days a week. Yes, so that's Shoot. an everyday thing too. Mulk, not every day. Oh, really? That goes comes in waves. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, sometimes you just you I told just, you about the mulk and the coconut milk, milk, right? Yes, sir. That's a big difference because look i can't pound a freaking half gallon of milk or whatever i can't pound a big giant uh what is it 20 ounces of milk on an empty stomach it's not optimal it's not optimal as far as the way you feel right you're familiar with this i understand yes yes but you can hammer that coconut milk and it tastes freaking delicious. Yeah. Delicious. Arguably better than regular milk taste wise. Coconut milk with. We could be there. Yeah. We could be there. I know that's sad. Dave's looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm telling you, no. we could <laughs> be there. If you haven't gone, have you gone down the coconut milk road yet? No, but I'm not a, I'm not a milk guy. I, I, we do almond milk. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, and yeah, so okay. I th- you're, you you're speaking my language. I, I, I mean. To drink like twenty ounces of milk right now actually sounds like it would be a problem for me. <laughs> yeah, because I, I haven't drank regular milk in a long That'd time. Be like a night carrier landing. <laughs> it would be the, the bigger issue is barrel all day. What do you mean you don't take it every day? What milk? Yeah, yeah. I did, you know it goes in waves. Like for you know week, two weeks or whatever. So what do you sometimes. do like if you're? You, what do you do when you get done with dinner and it was a really good dinner and then you're like, oh yeah, but I want dessert. Yeah, I don't dessert that, that much makes dessert. you strong. Well, you know, when I'm thinking that, milk train all day. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, that feeling comes in waves. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anyway, the the almond <laughs> Dave, Dave's are not relating at all. The almond milk, coconut milk, regular milk. I like regular regular milk, straight up, like like it. Mm-hmm. Empty stomach, full stomach, whatever. I had coconut milk in like a you know a random smoothie before, mm-hmm. and I was surprised. It was surprisingly good. Oh, it's good for good. A, coming from a dairy milk, cow's milk lover. That's that's something. Cool. All right, nothing. so we got that. Uh, we got Warrior Kid milk as well. We got Jocko White Tea. We got the cans of Disciplingo, which I've been partaking into of a quite a, quite a few many today. Uh, so getting a little crazy with that, and part of that reason is just because it freaking tastes delicious. Uh, all these things are available at the vitamin shop. So 
if a vitamin shop's open around you, you can find some of this stuff. If not, you can go to OriginMain.com. You can order it up, and we will send it to you. Stat. Yep, very reliable crew over Stat. there. Stat. Yes, oh, the, the crew is up there just getting after it. Yes. <laughs> just getting after it. Okay. Also, Origin, they also make geese for jujitsu because mm. we are doing jujitsu. Hey, slow. We got to get back into jujitsu. Have to at some point we have to right and I dig it if we're if we're if we're exercising restraint being a little hesitant mm-hmm. you know given the current I dig it but some of us men it's kind got of got a corn and train corn <laughs> train with your corn team yes sir with your corn team yeah That's man right. and some people getting back into it quicker than others so if you don't have a gi you want to know what the best gi is factually origin gi boom made in America hundred percent also aside from jujitsu. Not forgetting about jiu-jitsu, but aside from jiu-jitsu, we got... In addition to jiu-jitsu. Adi- yes, correct. In addition yes. to jiu-jitsu gis that are made in America, we have other things. Yes, sir, that is true. Denim, American denim, in the form yeah. of jeans. Yep. We all wear jeans. Quarantine or not, we can wear our jeans, and we can represent made in America 100%. By the way, no big deal, but you can also help rebuild manufacturing in the United States of America. Yeah. Maybe that's important to you. I know it's important to me. So you sure. might want to get on that train as well. Get sure. yourself some Origin boots. Yeah. Boots. 100%. Yeah. Boots have it, as you mentioned yeah, the last time. That was, got, a good, that was a good way to put it. Do you have Origin boots yes, yet? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I do. I don't think I've seen you wearing them. Have I? Oh, wait. Well, no. Uh, no, I haven't seen you wearing them. I tend to reserve my boot wearing scenarios um, pretty conservatively, you know, so... I, uh, you know, I don't wear them. Basically, very often. this is your way of saying we need to make origin Chuck slippers or, and or slippers, yeah. and some form of uh, sneakers, sneakers, tennis shoes, running shoes, whatever, whatever, depending on what part of the world you're from. What do you guys call sneakers in in Hawaii? Shoes. Shoes. I, you know what? I don't know if we're, we were ever familiar with that product shoes or mm-hmm. whatever because it was so, just yeah slippers. when i moved to the mainland it was like yeah shoes sneakers or we wear slippers aka flip flops yeah or go bare feet 100 percent. what are we calling sandals uh, i call them flip flops yes um sandals to me sandals means has a strap over the yeah. top is a different situation uh-huh. maybe you, this is a like a this is like a uh, a guy that lives in Miami that's taking his, you know, his young uh, girlfriend and he's like 52 years old and he's taking her out to like an Italian restaurant. That guy's wearing sandals, <laughs> right? I'm wearing yeah. flip-flops over flip-flops. here. Well, right? is there a, it, it, did I catch maybe, is there an origin flip-flop scenario brewing here? I would not be mad at that scenario. No. Let me put it to you this way. I don't want to wear things that aren't made in America at origin. At all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, and as like you, I wear flip flops pretty much every day. So, uh, are there some brewing? The answer is in the affirmative, big time. Well, I think sandals. And this is just how it feels. So I don't know mm-hmm. technically. Flip flops, sandals. If you're referring to flip flops, are the ones that if they you're goes referring between to your, my homeboy in Miami. Yeah, well, that's his different. Trophy girlfriend. Well, the, the, if the thing goes between your your big toe and your second toe. The thing, you know, they call them thongs sometimes. Oh, if that's it a good goes, term for it, it. If it has that, then yeah, sandals don't. They just cover your foot. They okay. don't go between your toe. I don't know. That seems like the technical reason. All uh, this stuff 
and more available at originmain.com. Get some. Yes. Very true. Also, what do we got? I think we have a store. Yes. It's called Jocko's Store. It's where you want to continue to represent on the path. This is where you can get your discipline equals freedom, good shirts, more rash guards, David Burke, hoodies, hats, beanies, you know, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Apparel. We got some posters on there, too. Oh, yeah. Some worry kid stuff as well. That's always good. Yeah. So, yeah, JockoStore.com. Go over there, uh, you know, get something. Represent. While you're on this path that we're all on. Also, you can support this podcast by subscribing to it. Subscribe to this podcast. And then this podcast called Jocko Podcast. We also have another podcast that I'm changing the name of and we'll get it back out there. And I'm, we're, we're discussing the, how we're going to actually play that game or how we're going to do it. But so there was a podcast called The Thread. It will be back under a new name. I didn't I didn't even Google the name when I just named my own new podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. Just zero research. This is a good name, I like it and do it. Hey, so some, yeah. sometimes I'm a little bit too default. <laughs> so gotta watch out for that. Got the grounded podcast where we talk about life through the lens of jujitsu. Warrior Kid podcast for your children and also pretty good for parents to listen to. And also we get some Warrior Kid soap. Available yet? Yes. Oh, it's available on JockoStore.com. Order yourself some killer soap made by young Aiden so that you, as a human being, can stay clean. clean. (laughs) Also, not to mention Jocko Soap and Trooper Soap. Oh. Yeah, so the, you know, so sometimes, I'm not saying this is what it's for because it's not what it's for, but sometimes soap is sort of sitting out. It's just sitting out on display, we'll call it. So word on the street is the Trooper Soap in particular gets many, many compliments with the aroma. Interesting. So it smells good is what I'm saying. Interesting. Yeah. I personally like that killer soap. Yeah, I like Uh, the killer soap. But I guess the Trooper Soap, if you want to, you know, let's say it's at nighttime, your final shower, you're going to go sleep with your wife or something like this, maybe use the Trooper Soap is what I'm saying. Interesting. Anyway, yes, Irish has spoken. Ranch.com, also JockoStore.com. Boom, soap available. Get some. Also, we have a YouTube channel. If you're interested in the video version of this podcast, you're going to watch it instead of just listen. Uh, by the way, I posted a video the other day of me making some food with what? Josh Hall oh, and, yeah. and, and Tori. And the nuts somebody wrote like... Um, the no explosions, so I think we kind of yeah. owe it to the world <laughs> to put explosions, <laughs> to in put explosions in some, you know, some Jocko cooking videos. Right. I'm the worst cook. Uh, well, you know, some yeah. guys are into it. Yes, you know, it's kind of like a thing. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm gonna grill up Leif Babin all the way, dude. Leif Babin's all right. about that grilling. And what, what do you do with a? What do you do with it before you cook it? You leave it in the fridge inside some sauce for the night. What's oh, that? Marinated. Yeah, mar- he's marinating. He's Leif's like, yeah, I got some. Uh, <laughs> marinade. He's all fired up for that. <laughs> I, I, you know what I'll do with food? Eat it. Uh, I understand. So, you, know, you know how you can tell if someone's really into cooking oh. when they put salt on it. They don't just put salt like this or mm-hmm. like a, you know, you put seasoning, mm-hmm. you know, before it goes in the oven, wherever it goes, you know, you just put salt, put seasoning. This is how you can tell. They grab the salt 
they grab the salt with their fingers and mm-hmm. they then they sprinkle it like in a circle. You know, like they have a they have a technique to mm-hmm. sprinkling. So, you see what I'm saying? People not into cooking, they don't do that kind of stuff. What about the guy that the the salt bay? Oh, advanced. Oh, advanced. Here's the deal. Salt administrator. I've been to his restaurant. Yeah. And I have had him actually put salt on my steak, cut it for me. <laughs> yep. All right. And did he and he did it that way? I did. He was advanced. Oh. Name drop. You want to hear a name drop? Yes, sir. You know I who do. I was sitting there eating steak with? A couple friends, including Henzo Gracie, we're kicking it. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. That is, that's a solid oh, name drop. Oh, he's so awesome. Yes. Such an awesome guy. Yes, sir. So there you go. Name drop. Yeah. Anyway, so the point is, yeah, we have a YouTube channel. So, yeah, check that out if you're, if you know, you know, watch the podcast straight up. Also, Psychological Warfare. You need a little spot. That's what it is. A spot if you're hitting moments of weakness. Specifically in the workouts that I mean, if I'm speaking for myself mm-hmm. right now, if you need a little spot, you want to get past that feeling of, oh, I don't feel like doing this, whatever, boom, psychological warfare will spot you a little bit. Flipsidecanvas.com, Dakota Meyer making prints for you to hang up in your house that will keep you on the path. We got a bunch of books. We got Top Gun by Dan Pedersen. You can get that on jockopodcast.com, the books. Some people were late getting that up there. No big deal. Eh, you know. Whatever. Better late than never. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You, know. uh, you can get that there. You can also get the latest book called The Code, The Evaluation, The Protocols. Dave Burke, getting some good feedback on that getting book. Getting some good feedback on that book. Big time. Agree. Troopers are in the game <laughs> on this book, which is awesome. Humbling book. Dude. Humbling and repetitively humbling. Repetitively humbling. It's one of those books where uh, it's kind of like what you were saying about landing on a carrier and being on a carrier and having that life where you're like, this is hard, but I love it. That's the code, the evaluation. Put yourself in check. And it's like a, or it is a reminder because like a lot of this stuff is like, yeah, like you could have a one day. You could have a zero day, mm-hmm. right? But if you forget about the code, it won't even really move you either way. But if you're on the path, you know, if you are if you are reminded that, hey, you're going by this code, you throw up a zero, bro, that hurts, you know? Mm-hmm. But if you're not reminded, it doesn't hurt. See what I'm saying? Yep. Remind yourself. So get the code. You can get leadership strategy and tactics field manual. You can get Way the Warrior Kid 1, 2, and 3. You can get Mikey and the Dragons. You can get Discipline Equals Freedom field manual. You can get Extreme Ownership, Dichotomy, Leadership. Been writing books over here. Get some information in ya. Check those books out. Echelon Front is our leadership consultancy where we solve problems through leadership. You may think, well, how are you doing that? No one's traveling because of COVID-19. Well, we are. We are doing it all day long. We're actually stepping up. We're, we're doing a lot of it virtual. Well, we're doing it all virtual now. And what we found is that you can have me come and talk to your, uh, you, you can have me come and talk to your team of a thousand people in a, big, in a big auditorium. And most of those people, what they're watching is the screen next to me on stage that's projecting my face. That's what they're actually watching. And then they don't have any interaction. They can't ask any questions because there's too many people there. Or during a Zoom call, I'm right there, Dave's right there, Leif's right there, whoever whoever from the Echelon Front team is right there talking directly to 
to you, to your team. So it's turned out awesome. You know, the interaction that we can have, the connection, the discussions, that's what we're doing at Echelon Front now. It's been a great transition. Uh, I'm sure we'll do, we, we will end up doing live face-to-face uh, consulting again. But right now, it's no factor. We're pushing right through it. How many Zoom calls do you think you're doing a day right now, Dave? <laughs> Dude. Dude, I'm doing a lot of Zoom calls. Oh, yeah. And the whole time in my head I was thinking, what it was? it's no factor. It's no yeah. factor. Yep. It's been awesome. Yep. It's, it's in many ways, it's better. Yeah. It's better to be able to have Dave talk to your 12-person team twice a week, and that cost Dave an hour. But he spent, it cost him two hours, you know, in a week. Whereas if he had to fly up to your location and spend two hours up there, that cost him, whatever, two days. It cost him two days. And your people can't, you know, hit him up in that conversation and say, hey, what do you think? Hey, let me, let me hit you with an email. It's, it's, it's truly developing relationships that we didn't think was, was possible. So go to echelonfront.com for details on that. And, and in that, we also stepped up our game with EF Online, efonline.com. This is the other thing we're doing. We are communicating all the time. We're having live meetings. We're doing them basically five times a week. If you wanna, sit, if you wanna ask me a question, if you wanna ask me a question, if you wanna sit there on a computer, look at me and ask me a question, go to efonline.com and come to one of our live meetings. You will get to ask me a question. We'll have a full conversation. It's, it's epic. Not to mention we've got all kinds of material on there to, for you to, to learn leadership, to train your tactics. It's all in there and it's only growing. It's growing really fast. We've, we're, we're pouring everything we got into EF online. So check that out. We also have the muster coming up. We have Dallas, Texas, December 3rd and 4th. We have Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, September 16th and 17th. So if you want to come to those, better register quick. Extremeownership.com. We've sold out all of our gigs we've ever done. (laughs) We'll sell these out too. So if you want to come, go register. And EF Overwatch and EF Legion, Look, we work with companies all the time. All companies need leaders at every level, from frontline leaders to senior leaders. If you need a senior level leader, go to EF Overwatch. If you need a frontline leader, go to EF Legion. If you were in the military, in any capacity, go to eflegion.com and go and register so we can get you connected with companies that are looking for frontline leaders. And finally, americasmightywarriors.org. That is Mama Lee. That is Mark Lee's mom. And that is her charity, which she set up after Mark was killed. She decided to pick up the fight. She decided to carry on. And she's out there helping service members, helping their families, helping Gold Star families around the world. Uh, To give you an example of what she's doing, there's medical treatments that sometimes aren't covered by insurance, America, America's Mighty Warriors is covering that kind of thing for our vets. She's doing it all the time. That's one of the many things that she's out there doing. So if you want to support, go to that website and you can either donate or you can get personally involved. 
And if you want to hear any more of my despotic sermons, or you want to hear any more of Echo Charles's preposterous myths, or you haven't had enough of Dave's overindulgent anecdotes, then you can find us, all of us. We're on the interwebs. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Dave is at David R. Burke. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks to all of the military personnel out there. Look, they all make this machine work. When that carrier, when that fighter pilot's going to land on that carrier, there's 5,000 people that are making that possible on that ship. There's 5,000 people working, coordinating, making it happen. They're all over the place. So thanks to all of you that are out there. Thanks to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, and everyone that defends our way of life right here at home. Also, thanks to all the doctors, nurses, and medical personnel who care for us when our way of life is threatened. And to everyone else out there, just remember to keep that top gun mindset. Put your ego in check. Throw in a little bit of rebellion. Push yourself to learn. Set up competition that forces you to get better. And then get out there and get after it. And until next time, this is Dave Burke and Echo and Jocko. Out.